take you on a moonlit ride I'll show you how to live, I'll show you how to fly The time is right for a celebration It's the dawning of a brand new generation It's 50 years and we're reminiscing a lot Get on board for a magic land Free your soul to a rock and roll band and smile It's a party that you won't want to miss We'll laugh and share a lot of happiness We'll make a memory that'll last a whole lot long Moving on, moving on To find a brighter day A brand new world, a warmer kind of sun Misty kind of moonlight in her eyes Moving on, moving on You can touch the morning star It's not that hard to make a dream come true Dreams come true, it's up to you Let me take you on a moonlit ride Show you how to live, show you how to fly. The time is right for a celebration. It's the calling of a brand new generation. It's 50 years and we're reminiscing alive. It's 50 years and we're reminiscing alive. It's 50 years and we're reminiscing Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, today is Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how are you doing? I am doing great. Uh, here we are on the brink of history, Michael. I know. History doesn't stop for any man or woman, and it, we've just, you know, we're moving right down that timeline, and uh, things are heating up oh we got some big stuff coming i mean you know disney disney was was in a tenuous spot at the beginning of the 1980s even when epcot opened they had they'd spent a lot of money on epcot they had a lot of return on their investment what was going to happen to the company michael they had and they'd kind of 
taking the eye off the movie industry a little bit, taking the eye off animation a little bit. Seems that way. Things are getting kind of dicey, so like the man says, a change is going to come. And uh, so we've, we've got a lot. It's a very busy decade that awaits. That's right. And a decade that uh, for our age is, uh, this was a, an iconic era of transformation. I mean, and for the property as well. An age of massive expansion for sure. Unprecedented. Indeed. Well, uh, shall I get this time? This time machine's been working great. No problem. I know it's it's man, it's a smooth ride. I'll give it that. Yeah. Well, uh, let's. So yeah, fire let's, her up. Let's dial it into post Epcot Center opening. On behalf of Walt Disney Company, I hereby declare the Disney MGM Studios theme park open. There's not so much in theme park on the state of Vermont, but Hollywood never was, and will always be. I'm Michael Eisner. Tonight we celebrate Mickey Mouse's 60th birthday. Happy birthday, Mickey. We're looking forward to many, many more. Imagine a Disneyland as big as the city of San Francisco. A Disney World with a surprise around every corner. 43 square miles of tropical paradise. The spectacular Disney MGM Studios theme park. And the incredible Epcot Center. Imagine yourself here. Walt Disney World in Florida. Are we welcome you now to take the first steps into that future? We welcome you to the living seas. We welcome you to Sea Base Alpha. Hello, Michael Eisner, the new head of the Walt Disney Company. Welcome to tonight's feature. We're here today to meet the chairman and chief executive officer and the president, chief operating officer of our company. It's the beginning of a new era. They're really dynamic people, creative people. So please now welcome Michael Eisner and Frank Wells. Epcot is the country's newest entertainment park and the most expensive to build. Sort of a permanent World's Fair, which represents Disney Productions' idea of the past, present, and future.
Disney people hope that visitors to the Magic Kingdom will extend their stay in Disney World to visit Epcot just a couple miles away. But leave your Mickey Mouse ears at home because you won't see any of the famous and beloved characters at Epcot. Instead, Epcot will be the place for parents to drag the kids, not the other way around. The business that was built on Mickey Mouse is gambling a lot on Epcot, $1 billion, hoping that you will want to see into the future. Nineteen eighty-three saw a slate of new openings as Epcot continued to complete its original roster of attractions and shows. Included in these developments were some of the park's all-time most memorable attractions. First open came Journey into Imagination on March fifth. While the pavilion itself had opened with the park the previous year, the ride itself experienced a series of delays, which pushed it back several months. Also premiering in 1983 was New World Fantasy on the World Showcase Lagoon, which you can hear about in our Episode 11 Town Hall with Don Dorsey. And of course, on October 1st, the Big Kahuna had its opening on the park's first birthday when Horizons opened in Future World. That is quite a slate. Yes. Oh, man. Busy year. Yes. Yeah. Uh, We have we're. We're going to have a lot of Epcot to talk about next year, that's for sure. Uh, But the Epcot party continued through 1984 as well. On January 2nd, the Astuter Computer Review closed, making it the park's first attraction casualty. In June, Laserphonic Fantasy debuted, replacing the New World Symphony. And on September 7th, the Morocco Pavilion opened. Uh, These were crazy busy years. Yeah, getting the rest of the opening slate open. You know, the... The last episode, we recalled how they were predicting all these new World Showcase pavilions within three years. That didn't quite pan out, but still, looking at what happened, uh, man, what a great time to be here uh, when these pavilions are finishing up. Yeah, just one after another, it seemed like, and so many more on the horizon, we thought. We should also mention that on Christmas Day, 1983, something happened that would go on to become a big holiday tradition of ours for many years to follow. For the first time, ABC aired the Walt Disney World Very Merry Christmas Parade. Yes. Yeah. As we talked about on our last Christmas episode, in those days, they really did show the Christmas Parade, and it was always quite a high point of the holiday. You'd get sneak peeks at everything that was coming up, which was really exciting in those days when news about new projects was scarce. Joan London and Mike Douglas were the hosts that first year, and it's uh, kind of weird to look back considering how much the program has changed over the decades. And now, live from the Magic Kingdom, Joan London and Mike Douglas. Oh, a very Merry Christmas, everybody, and welcome to Walt Disney World's Very Merry Christmas Parade. There's never been a Christmas like this before in the whole wide world. First of all, we're at Disney World in Florida, where it's sunny, cool, crisp, wonderful, nothing to shovel out there. And it's the first Christmas ever that the residents of Magic Kingdom have allowed us in on their annual Christmas parade with all their friends on television. You're going to see it all. That's right. You're going to see all your favorite Disney characters parading right down Main Street USA in scenes right out of 
uh, storybook and film classics. Now, besides all the excitement here today, we're going to get a chance yeah. to visit that other place you've heard so much about, Epcot Center. And showing us some of the holiday fun over there will be a singing star who's brightening the holidays with her own show at Epcot Center, Carol Lawrence. Hi, Carol. Hi, Mike. Hello, Joan. I'm just a few miles away from the Magic Kingdom here at Epcot Center, but I'm in a whole other world. The holiday celebration here is spectacular in its own right, and I'm going to give everyone a peek at some of the music and the wonder of how Christmas is enjoyed on the other side of the world. But until then, I'll be watching all the magic your way. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Magic Kingdom in Florida and Walt Disney's very Merry Christmas Parade. We're live, and we're just about ready to go. Joan, were you surprised when they asked you to be a host? Well, it's not every day you get a call from a mouse, especially the most famous mouse in the in world. The world yeah. I know you don't even offered to have Dumbo come up and fly me down. Don't you like to fly? Well, no, but I've never ridden an elephant before. <laughs> But Dumbo's going to be here, right? And how. We'll see Dumbo and all the residents of this magic kingdom today in the parade because this is where they live. And probably just like in your hometown, they love to put on a parade. And especially at Christmas time, and especially for Santa, it. who, of course, stops by each way, each year on his way to the North Pole. And, uh, oh, I'm getting a message right now. It's from Mickey. Is that him? Yep. Okay, we're ready to begin. Let's go down to Main Street, USA, and the first ever television presentation of Walt Disney World's Very Merry Christmas Parade. <laughs> and how. Man, Joan London is so wacky in this. Yeah. She's oh, like yeah. Literally ribbing Mike Douglas. Uh, it's just Mike it's Douglas has a real fluffy grandpa vibe. Oh, he is so fluffy at yes. this point. Uh, I, my favorite part of that clip we just played is when they go to Carol Lawrence and the director is like, "Action!" Yeah. And then she nails it. She's just great. <laughs> yeah. Just waiting for her cue. She's like looking off when she gets cued too. Uh -huh. They didn't do the uh, silent action point. I, I suppose it's a little bit of a, a little bit of Disneyland's opening. You know, shades of that with the early Disney Christmas parades was that kind of crazy live TV feel to it. Oh yeah, I mean they did them completely live, and all the goofs and flubs and everything cooked into it. But just <laughs> fluffy Mike Douglas, oh, Dumbo and Mickey and. <laughs> All your friends are here. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, it's it's quite a little time capsule for sure. In June of 1984, a weird little cul-de-sac of Disney history began when the company purchased Arvida Corporation of Boca Raton for $214 million in Disney stock. Founded by Arthur Vining Davis, Arvida, get it? who also founded Alcoa, the Aluminum Corporation of America. He must have liked little, like, uh, abbreviated names. <laughs> That's right. Clever abbreviations. Yeah. Arvida was a developer of residential, resort, and business communities across the country. The purpose of all this purchase was the fight that was then underway by Disney to fend off a takeover by New York financier Saul Steinberg, who at the time held 12.1% of Disney stock, and was attempting to oust the board of directors. A takeover would have to be approved by 80% of the company's stakeholders, and Disney management at the time held around 10 to 15% of the company. By using stock to buy Arvida, this would, one assumed, make the businessmen who now held that stock 
side with existing management, which would enlarge the block of loyal voters who would vote against a takeover. Arvida was purchased in part from the Bass Brothers, plutocrats from Texas who would figure greatly in Disney drama to come. Ironically, the purchase was opposed by Roy E. Disney, who had quit the board three months prior and who would eventually side with the Basses to stave off takeovers and bring in Michael Eisner and Frank Wells. Another goal of the Arvida purchase was increased exploitation of Disney-held land, including the 15,000 acres of Walt Disney World, then earmarked for future development. This land had been part of the reason Disney had been such a target of hostile takeover attempts, because the business community believed Disney to be heavily undervalued due to all the undeveloped land which they held. Arvida chairman Charles E. Cobb was assigned to mastermind the development of the Florida property. One thing that blew my mind was that as part of his onboarding process, he was flown to California and shown a copy of Walt's Epcot film, which I find bizarre. Uh, he was quoted as saying, quote, we are very sensitive to Walt's dreams. He said that Walt's ideas for residential villages had many similarities with Arvida's strategy for developing planned communities, incorporating homes, recreation, and business. It's so funny uh, to me that they bothered to like take him out there and show him that. That's just sh telling that it was Walt just cast a large shadow even at this point he was kind of looming over the organization um yes yeah. this, this was always so confusing to me when i was a kid hearing about arvida and it was very confusing yeah what was going on <laughs> i remember in like the pamphlets you would get for you know like disney vacations or whatever and it would have you know disney world a three night stay at the polynesian fort wilderness contemporary whatever and then in the end there end of the booklet there would always be like a few pages of you know some some condominium somewhere by arvita and oh, yeah. stay with arvita and boca raton and i was like what what is that yeah. even a thing for and it was a pretty big you know piece of the pie i mean it wasn't huge but but pretty big yeah i mean it was it was something that came up a lot which was super yeah. weird uh, but yeah i think the fact that this was the you know the very 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 end of the ron miller era they were still holding on to that epcot vision which i just find fascinating that they would go to that That's trouble pretty wild but, pretty wild yeah, so to carry out the planning for Walt Disney World, it was said that a new entity would be established by Disney and Arvida executives to develop Disneyland. Cobb indicated that Disney property in Florida would be used for a mix of resort and residential communities at different price levels, focused on different recreational themes and or focused around the Magic Kingdom or Epcot Center. He said that the homes would be priced for the upper two-thirds of the market with $50,000 first-time buyer homes at the bottom of the scale. Jeff, this seems like a real key indicator as to how we started the slippery slip towards celebration and even Golden Oak. Yes, it definitely seems of that ilk a little different than the Lake Buena Vista plan up until this point. Uh, it seems like they're officially moving away from that. Uh, also Disney development company, shout out. Yeah. Uh, just the very 
uh, spark, first spark of that idea. And they played a major role all around the world in Disney's doings. Exactly. Wow. It would go on to be a, a very, very big deal. So this was, you know, uh, although Arvida does not stick around, the instigation that this has for the DDC is hugely influential. Yes. And to, yeah, celebration is DDC city. So exactly. You're right. Yeah. You're right. It's the so beginning they, of all this. They were right. Even though this was more than 10 years before that, they, they had started down the path. We really haven't talked much about the business trajectory of Walt Disney Productions during this trip down memory lane, because for the most part, the parks remained an extremely healthy segment of the company, with ever-increasing attendance and ever-growing plans for expansion. In 1984, however, the state of the studio became something of immediate importance for the entire company, as a string of high-profile flops and the ill intentions of outside raiders suddenly put the fate of the company in potential jeopardy. What happened in September of that year would provide a drastic and lasting impact for Walt Disney World, which is still being felt down to this day. On September 23, 1984, the front page of the Los Angeles Times announced the somewhat shocking news that after seven months of battling corporate raiders, there had been a massive management change on the Disney lot. For the first time in 61 years, the Disney family had lost control of the studio that Walt and Roy had founded. Disney was at long last going Hollywood, and in a big way. From Paramount came Disney's new chairman and chief executive officer, Michael Eisner, and from Warner Brothers came its new president and chief operating officer, Frank Wells. Out was Walt's son-in-law, Ron Miller, who had been ousted to CEO two weeks prior, as well as Ray Watson, who had served as chairman for the previous 18 months. Apparently, Ron Miller had tried to get Eisner to come run the studio's motion picture unit in 1982, which I find absolutely fascinating. But Eisner had declined at the time because Miller wouldn't also make him COO. Now, you want to talk about a fascinating alternate history what if that had happened? What if Eisner had come and revived the studio under Miller? That would have been interesting to think about. I mean, clearly we've talked about before, you know, Ron Miller had a lot of the things in place that set up Eisner for success. Uh, yeah. You know, it was just a matter of time, but yeah, you wonder if it would have worked. I don't know. I mean, you know, Eisner had been the guy who had had such success at Paramount with Indiana Jones, with the big Star Trek movies, with uh, things like Beverly Hills Cop, all these big movies. And I'm fascinated by the idea that Ron Miller was like, well, we need someone like that. Let's bring him in. And I just right. imagine that what that would be like is crazy to me. Uh, but as you said, it goes to what we've said in past episodes, Ron Miller really had an instinct for what needed to change, and he put in motion a lot of really important business initiatives that later people got credit for. He was just too late in the end. But well, Yeah, and then, you know, there's all these rumors about them shutting down the studio, whether or not that was going to happen. I mean, that kind of really caused a steep escalation and, you know, people wanting him gone. So, I mean, it's hard to believe that's actually true when, He's setting up Touchstone and all this stuff. So who knows? It's really amazing when you read press reports at the time because reporter, like, oh, well, not even, not reporters, but, you know, analysts, 
pundits. Mm-hmm. Like, well, Disney isn't even a movie studio. They don't make movies. They This is so stupid that... Because when Eisner comes in, of course, he's like, we're going to make a ton of movies. And they're like, "This Disney is a theme park company. It's not a movie studio. This is so stupid. He's not going to make movies. It's That's not a thing. And of course, they were yeah, wrong. Uh, again, they, they owned Arvida. I mean, they're a land development company. <laughs> as exactly. As much as they are a studio at this point. Hey, there is some truth to that. But, man, talk about losing your way a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the studio was totally written off by everyone in the press. This was, Eisner's arrival was pretty much a nuclear event in Disney history. Maybe the nuclear event. Definitely the biggest and most influential moment we've talked about since Walt died. And in fact, I was thinking it may have had a bigger lasting impact considering the fact that, you know, Walt would have died eventually anyway. But Eisner and Wells' arrival changed the company completely forever. Well, yeah. And as far as a corporate entity, Disney looks a lot more like, you know, Michael Eisner's company now than than Walt Disney's, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, the yeah, the size of the company, the impact it has in all kinds of different sectors, that's all from Michael Eisner on. Mm-hmm. And he groomed Iger, and he, you know, had even Chapek was under Iger, was under so. him, yeah. Like all, yeah. So definitely much more similar, as you say now, to a Michael Eisner company than to a Walt Disney company for sure. This was a fascinating time. A lot of people thought the company was going to be carved up with each business unit sold off separately. Even after the announcement, people thought that the investors who had backed the takeover, the aforementioned Bash Brothers, would take short-term earnings by just selling Disney off for parts, just splitting it up, selling it off. Uh, Nothing seemed certain. But Eisner wanted to make movies, and Disney management shifted its focus massively from parks to film and television production. This movie focus would heavily impact the parks in years to come, as Eisner almost immediately announced his intention to bring George Lucas and Steven Spielberg into the Disney fold to develop content for the theme parks. Lucas had already been in discussions with Disney under Miller, but Eisner lit a fire under things. I find it really interesting that Eisner was focusing on both, and you know, Lucas did go on to work with Disney, but Spielberg never really has, despite being a Disney fan in his youth, but I he, know, and you know, yeah, he was always somebody that they talked about in those early years. And they had Roger Rabbit, but never quite matriculated it onto the full collaboration. Exactly, yeah, friction. Yeah, a lot of friction, and that never ended. Uh, layoffs swept the theme park division at this time, despite the fact that Eisner and Wells flew to Orlando and gave an address to about 4,000 cast members in front of Cinderella Castle in an attempt to assure them everything was going to be fine. Management also indicated a new focus on increased land development through Arvida. This meant land would be going not to theme park use, but for more conventional development purposes. We have some footage from when Eisner and Wells addressed the cast in Orlando. Here's a bit of what they had to say that day. Thank you very much. Last time I was here, I waited an hour for Space Mountain. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a tremendous pleasure to be here. 
Actually, uh, I'm an expert on uh, the Disney organization. I have been to Disneyland about 3,000 times. I have three boys, and uh, I moved to California about 10 years ago. And I have a lot of cousins and a sister, and every time they come to California, we go to Disneyland. So I've been on uh, Pirates of the Caribbean about 5,200 times. <laughs> Actually, uh, I have uh, wanted to be involved with the Disney organization uh, for all my life. I grew up, as uh, most people in my generation did, uh, on Walt Disney Entertainment. And uh, my family, uh, nobody in my family is in the entertainment business. Uh, most of them are lawyers or uh, professional people of some kind. And uh, when I was in college, uh, there was a girl I wanted to go out with <laughs> who was not my wife. <laughs> she wasn't there, I hadn't met her yet, who was in the theater department. And uh, she wouldn't go out with me, and I figured if uh, I went to see her in a play, she'd go out with me, and she still wouldn't go out with me, and I finally wrote a play, which was terrible, but she performed in it, and I thought that would make her happy, and it did, but she still wouldn't go out with me. <laughs> At any rate, that's how I got interested in the entertainment business. I then uh, have to graduate from college, join the guest relations department of NBC, uh, where I was a page, and I worked on uh, The Price is Right, and Jeopardy and Let's Make a Deal and uh, the old Jack Parr show. At any rate, I, I got involved with the entertainment business and I loved it. Sometime during that period, uh, there used to be a drive-in movie theater in Bruckner Boulevard in New York. And uh, geez, I thought my three-month-old son was ready to see a Disney movie. Uh, and my wife and I drove to this drive-in theater to see Pinocchio. I guess that was two releases ago, or three releases ago. Uh, and I could not believe the difference in the kind of work that Walt Disney had done and the work that I was looking at on Saturday morning. And it was at that point that I became uh, very impressed with Walt Disney and, and everything that he was doing. Since I have come to this organization uh, a week ago, I have learned more and more about it. Uh, I realized that uh, more than half of the company is in this state and uh, which I think is fantastic. Uh, last night we were standing right here with the lights on in the Magic Castle and Main Street and uh, uh, it was an enormously fantastic feeling. Uh, I want to say that uh, the selection of Frank and myself to work with you in this company we think is an indication that the board of directors have decided that this company will be led from a creative point of view. It is. <laughs> I am quite confident that our selection also is an indication that the company uh, is not for sale, that the company has taken the position that uh, uh, the product and the people are more important than anything else, uh, that the company has taken. <laughs> I can assure you that I did not come to this organization uh, to watch it be dismantled, uh, that uh, I came here to try and continue 
what Walt Disney and his associates set in motion 50 years ago. And that is very simply this. It is essential to maintain the old, to respect the old, to uh, replenish the old, to enhance the old, to modernize the old, uh, and to make that move forward. At the same time, it's essential to do what I'm sure Walt Disney himself would have done, which is to experiment with every new and innovative kind of entertainment possible. Whether it be a new attraction here, uh, a new theatrical motion picture, a new television program, uh, a new kind of entertainment, uh, uh, anything that we can think of that is uh, innovative and probably more importantly than anything else, excellent. Members of the cast, all of you, I think this is the I'm sure it is the proudest moment of my life. One of the reasons is because of the gentleman you just heard from. He comes from the motion picture business, as do I. But he's much more than that. I think he's probably the foremost entertainment executive of our time. And that's, that's what the board of directors of this company did when they picked the two of us, is send that signal that this is primarily an entertainment company around the world. And that's why I'm so very proud to be part of it and to be here. We really did. A week ago last Monday when we joined this company, the first thing we did was turn to, to Dick Nunes and to Chuck Cobb from our Vita Land Division, also mainly down here in Florida, and said the first thing we want to do is to meet all the members of the cast, wherever they may be around the world, and shake your hands and welcome ourselves to your company. Uh, we've each come from other companies that happen to be in the motion picture business, as I've said. And we heard a great deal about the Disney family and what it stood for. But until you're part of it, you really don't quite believe it. Until you walk out here as we did this morning and see those faces and you and those smiles with that reputation for service and yes, that reputation for that word that Michael just used, excellence, you don't really know how wonderfully proud you are to be part of this company. I first felt it early on, first day when I visited Disneyland. And I saw in people's eyes, and as I shook their hands, a feeling for that excellence, for that service, which somehow Walt Disney started in this company, and which has carried on year after year and generation after generation. And I think that if there's any motto, if there's any way, if there's anything that Michael and I stand for, it is to keep that tradition, to spread it, to be part of it, and to have this company thrive on it in every one of its divisions. We pledge that to you. So there they are, laying out their case to the cast. What do you think, Michael? Oh, man. Well, first, I miss Frank. Second, yeah. uh, that, is, that is really amazing audio. Eisner sounds so nervous. Yeah. <laughs> so unbelievably nervous. It is hilarious to me. Uh, but also, in doing research for this show, I came to the realization that when he ascended to chairman and CEO, he was younger than I am right now. I was going to tell you that. Yeah, he's he was 43 years old. Yes. And you got to think, he wasn't in 
you know, that much of a forward facing, you know, public facing role up until this point. So, I mean, he had a lot of grooming. I mean, he sounds like a kid. It's he so really funny. does sound like a kid in a school play. Like just his like, like almost like Beavis and Butthead. Like, ha <laughs> 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 um, you know, I would be nervous too, obviously, but it, it, you know, considering how polished and smooth he got later and which is something like you said, he was groomed and went through all sorts of training, but it, it's so wild to hear that. And, you know, to hear them addressing the concerns that we talked about, about the company being split up, but, you know, I just wonder, had he ever been on space mountain really? Like he had he ever been to Disney World at all? Had he been yeah, to Disneyland like five thousand times? Like he said, I don't know. I bet he had been to Disneyland, but not yeah. Who knows? But uh, you say Miss Frank. I mean that that is the thing that the two of them together were really dynamic, and it was just an incredible one-two punch where you know Eisner was kind of a fountain of ideas and somewhat impulsive. Frank was kind of like the people to people person, the mm-hmm. kind of steady hand. You can even tell it in their delivery here. Yes, you can hear it. Frank, to me, I guess I, this is a weird comparison, but to me, he's always like, I've always viewed him as the Mr. Spock to Eisner because <laughs> he's just <laughs> sort amazing. of the calm and logical one, and Eisner's like the emotional one. Uh, and he's just sort of logical, just very cool and collected and uh, knows what to say and how to say it. Yeah, I, I cut this audio down because it's really long, but it, this is amazing ending thing. I always forget that Eisner, you know, Eisner was like an English major. Yeah. He was like a, like an artsy dude. So at the end, he's like, you know, when history is over, they're only going to remember the artists. Like there's there, nobody's going to remember the politicians. Nobody's going to remember the cities. They'll remember the artists. And he gets all oh, wow. Right. It's like really intense. Like a, uh, <laughs> amazing. Like a but, Marxist poet or something. I uh, think it's you know interesting how much they are working in the shadow of Walt and kind of paying their respects to him and. Uh, but I do have to say, I think, you know, what Eisner said about, wh- you know, what Walt would have done is is pretty right on. From yeah. What I, you know, I mean, you know, uh, it's a good instinct. For I him. thought that was that was a good way to talk about the things that he knew he needed to do, but to, to frame it in that way, I thought was very, very smart and also true. And, yeah. you know, for the first about 10 years, he did do it that way before things kind of got off the rails but it you can just imagine the wave of skepticism they were met with by all these old timers oh my gosh i mean literally in this video of them getting introduced there's like cast members with their arms crossed just staring i mean it's (laughs) i'm sure they thought this was just the end of the world pretty much yeah it's hollywood you know it's like it's a whole different set of values mm-hmm. not a mind. family shop anymore definitely right. yeah yeah so on november 26 1984 eisner and wells are profiled in the sentinel where the cultural change is evident while the duo immediately set to ramping up studio efforts in both tv and film uh, michael how about the, those gummy bears you know <laughs> yeah those wuzzles i just saw those uh, gummy bears and my son's 
My son wanted them at a snack. I felt like we need to have a TV show about this. <laughs> That's what I love about him. Like any random thing that comes across, he's like, kids like gummy bears. Let's make a cartoon about gummy bears. <laughs> oh, my son thanks you, Michael Eisner. But um, they began to grapple with how to approach management of the theme parks. One big change was the decision to begin national ad campaigns, which is just nuts. Up until this point, Disney had not done any large-scale advertising, preferring to let their sponsors and guests do the work for them, both through word of mouth and sponsored paid advertisements. Uh, Eisner and Wells also mentioned getting more thrill rides into the parks to attract teenagers. But <laughs> these advertisements, they were like, well, we want to get our message out. Uh, it's kind of wild that they had were, had so much success without doing any advertising. Yeah, this is something that I'm sure a lot of people don't realize or remember today. But at the time, this was a huge deal because it was a real point of pride for disney to say we've never run a single national ad because we don't need to and we're just that good and word of mouth has done what it needs to do so when they started doing it it was a big deal and like you started seeing disney world commercials and it was like what is this this is crazy but, you know, they'd had those people like Charlie Ridgway who would come up with these elaborate, insane promotional things yeah, and, like, yeah. have every reporter in the country on a junket to a Disney park. And they just they just did it their way for so long. So big changes. That's right. Uh, another thing I didn't realize was that uh, they didn't pay travel agent percentages until eisner and wells came yeah. later on they didn't have to do that either but you know without these ads we wouldn't have that amazing epcot center yes. commercial that they yes the best da, 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 yeah, da, da. totally another interesting note here is that disney was considering selling their orlando hotels with lease back arrangements to get immediate capital and even into the next year, rumors surrounded this, as well as selling Epcot pavilions, which I find totally bizarre. So this is something that scarred me as a kid, because I remember, I've still got it here somewhere. There was a big cover story about Eisner in, I want to say, Business Week in like 1986, I'm guessing, 85 or 86. And I had seen it at the library, or maybe... Maybe somebody like Anna Ann had given it to me or whatever. But it was a whole article about how, you know, Eisner was changing things, how Disney was kind of taking off. And in it, it talked about uh, he had plans or was thinking about selling Epcot and for a lease back arrangement. So they would sell it to somebody else and then lease it back, which to me is a bizarre plan. Uh, yeah. Totally bizarre. For and both sides. For, yes. For I don't see who that would benefit. <laughs> right. Uh, and I never understood why until I was an adult and somebody explained he wanted money to make movies. And right. they didn't have the capital needed to make all these crazy movies he wanted to make right off the bat. So he was going to sell Epcot. Like, who would have bought, like, sure, I'll pay a billion and a half dollars to buy your random theme park in the middle of your property. And then lease it back to you. Really weird. Right. And even I mean, even more bizarre, you know, <laughs> hey, 
GM, do you want to buy the world of motion? And yeah, <laughs> sure. Like um, it was so hard to convince them to sponsor stuff in the first that's place. Exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, why would you buy it? But yeah, as a kid, I was like, why is he trying to sell Epcot? Why would he do that? A lot of jokes about Eisner and Epcot just come to mind, but this talk was going on through 1987. There was articles saying they're considering selling Epcot pavilions. I mean, just totally bizarre. Really weird. Uh, Disney also initiated talks with companies such as Marriott and Hyatt to take over and run their hotel business, something that would come back around in just a few years. This was something they mold for a long time as well. Yeah. Makes a little more sense, but still. On December 30th, 1984, the Chicago Tribune reported that in January or February of 1985, quote, the newly created Disney Development Company will disclose what officials describe as, quote, a really exciting land use plan (laughs) for about 10,000 prime residential acres surrounding Walt Disney World and Orlando. According to Charles Cobb, a director at Disney who was affiliated with Arvida before their acquisition, quote, you'll see $1 million homes, you'll see $50,000 homes. There you go, Michael. Cobb went on to describe a development with recreational facilities and hotels. When asked about Walt Disney's original residential plans, Cobb commented, quote, a lot of his ideas will be implemented, some won't. Some of his transportation ideas won't be implemented. It was his dream that the property would be extensively served by the monorail. In our judgment, that doesn't work in the residential areas. American society is too dependent on the automobile. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh Chuck Cobb. It's like transportation is kind of the main idea of Walt's ideas. But anyway. yeah, it was um, the foundational element. You know, we've seen a one of these ideas. I don't know if it was in this time frame or not. It's pretty wild to look at, uh, you know, the concept art of what property would have looked like. It's basically the entire area that, you know, Animal Kingdom, All-Stars, all MGM, all the stuff below is just like a housing development. Yeah. Pretty bizarre. Very strange. It's so thankful that this did not happen. I know. What a nightmare that would have been. You buy up all this land so you have the blessing of size and you have distance to like buffer your parks. And then you slap in some housing developments and just blow it all. Yeah, really, really very glad that never happened. Yeah. Sorry, Chuck. I mean, there, there were all these rumors about how many homes they were going to have. And it just sounded, you know, like... 30,000 people living, you know, around Epcot. They were really focused on getting close to Epcot at this time period, too. I I wonder if that was just, was that just to be like, look, we made Epcot the city. It's a theme park surrounded by McMansions. Or is it this whole, like, we've gone after the... uh, the grandparent market for Epcot. Yeah. They can come eat at Epcot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Get those after five passes or whatever. That's right. And head over and over to Epcot. Yeah. Really weird. What a weird time. But um, yeah, I'm glad that didn't happen and glad they kind of came up with a scheme for when they did build celebration that it was far away and not really wrecking the theme park area. At the Disney shareholders meeting in February 1985, Michael Eisner revealed 
that they were considering the construction of a major studio tour at Walt Disney World. A spokesman said the idea was, in essence, a ride and had for years been a favorite of the people at WED. It was said that WED envisioned the tour as a history of entertainment where guests could see how Disney produces animated and live action films, as well as how it puts together audio animatronics figures. A Disney spokesman said that it was only an ephemeral concept at the moment, but that Eisner and Wells were moving quickly. Uh, moving quickly is right. I had forgotten that, I mean, they came in in September of 84. This is April of 85, and they're already chugging along on what would become Disney MGM. Yeah. They uh, and, and think about all the things they put into motion. Like we said, the, the studio was their first priority, and probably rightfully so. They did TV. They get movies. And now they're like turning to the theme parks and we will see it's just like dominoes. They're just like making plans. It's such a fast pace. It's pretty wild. And so much of the theme park stuff is to support the movie stuff. Yes. And it's, and that is really closely tied in at first. It's just unbelievable to me. They got going on this so fast, but uh, moving quickly, he was right on April 30th, 1985, just a few months after that, shareholder meeting disney announced that a studio tour with sound stages would be coming to walt disney world as its third gated attraction disney parks chief dick nuna said that a studio tour had been considered for several years which and i don't want to contradict nunas but i am skeptical about we all know the story of how the great moments at the movies attractions was originally considered for epcot before eisner decided to spin it off as the basis of a new theme park and we also know that Eisner had seen firsthand MCA's plans to bring its own universal tour to Orlando before he announced Disney's version. In fact, isn't there talk that he had originally proposed that Universal build their studio on Disney property? Is that how that I have heard that too, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, so there have been many years of accusations that he basically rip them off it's like oh let me see your plans okay well we're not interested but then <laughs> i'm gonna build my own uh, it's all pretty murky and i guess we won't know until we get eisner or maybe bob weiss on the podcast maybe bob knows so a couple of things here we mentioned in the last episode that in 1982 right when epcot was opening dick nunes did say that he wanted to build a studio at epcot for production True. Uh, that's a Although very that good was point. Probably for you know the Disney Channel mostly. That's true. It sounded like. Uh, where did this great moments of the movies attraction idea come from, Michael? I I don't. And when know. was it? When was it? I don't understand. I don't understand why that fit at Epcot. It's We've got bizarre... that one rendering, which apparently right. was by Joe Rohde. He said within the last oh, couple of weeks on Twitter, he was like, "Yeah, I painted that because somebody huh. posted it." Um, I, it's, it's all a real mystery to me because no one ever really talks about it except to say <laughs> what we said originally, they wanted to do it at Epcot, but then they made it a theme park, but they don't really talk about what it was or when it was or, right. but I guess it was just going to be what became the great movie ride. And that's it. Just plot there so, beside imagination. So strange to think about. 
being there i guess yeah i don't know but yeah there had been plans to, you're right there had been plans to do like a tv facility actually there was supposed to be a tv studio in the pre-show area for the electronic forum the future choice theater where they had the epcot pole hmm. there was mm-hmm. a space that had been set aside for that where you know people could shoot uh live you know live presentation that's why they had those big satellite dishes outside right but right. it just never really happened and this yeah this also signals uh, as we've kind of hinted at this is kind of the first time we see eisner whether whatever his motives are kind of going after the competition yes and that is going to be a theme we see over and over and over again uh, to the point where he gets some real bad ink in the local press, you know, about, about, there's a lot of people worried uh, in Orlando about whether or not their businesses are going to be able to survive Disney's massive growth plans. And this is, you know, a first sign of that with them kind of trying to shut down Universal, essentially. Yeah. Well, you, it's such a change from the early days of Disney World when you had like Dick Pope of Cypress Gardens out there saying, oh, Disney's going to mm-hmm. be great for the area. We welcome them. And uh, then Eisner starts just duplicating everything and, you know, structuring the business in order to keep people on property exclusively, which was a big, yes. a, a big campaign of his for a long, long time. That was his like defining mission. And suddenly Orlando businesses weren't so happy about it in any case uh, one of his main reasons for this studio was he wanted new sound stages he wanted to expand disney film production from to 15 movies a year from three movies a year which was what they were doing at the time wild i mean now we have three marvel movies a year much less anything else pixar disney animation and live action and lucas uh, eventually, he said, was, why not build them in Florida? I'm sure it's cheaper than to buy land in L.A., so why not build it there? The studio tour, as then planned, was said to include the art of animation, which would show how cartoon films evolved over the years. Disney would also move its archives to Walt Disney World and put Walt's old office on display, which hmm. is interesting. Although, eventually, we did get Walt's old office at uh, Hollywood Studios. That's true. Many That's years true. later. Disney said that studio tour admission would cost less than the $18 price then charged for a one-day ticket for the Magic Kingdom or Epcot. Experts chimed in telling the media that Disney's announcement would kill MCA's plans to build a Universal Studios tour in Central Florida. Not so fast, my friend. Nope. $18 a day, Michael, to get into Magic Kingdom, Epcot. Too steep for studios, though. Studios is going to be cheaper. Yeah, that's right. $18, I man. Also, yeah, oh, I take God. issue with the uh, gated uh, attraction. I mean, what, what, River I Country, too. man. What about oh. River Country and Discovery, Discovery Island? Discovery Island, yeah. What a crock. Well, also on April 30th, 1985, Walt Disney World broke ground for a $265 million hotel and convention complex. According to the Orlando Sentinel, it would be the largest of its kind on the East Coast, according to company officials and the project's developers. The complex, which will include two luxury hotels with almost 2,300 rooms and 200,000 square feet of meeting and exhibition space, represents the largest investment ever made at Disney World 
by outside companies. The complex will include what will be the largest hotel in Florida, the 1,528-room Sheraton Orlando, as well as a Holiday Inn Crown Plaza Hotel with 759 rooms. The two hotels will be built next to each other on a 68-acre site leased by Disney, unquote. Now, this was a development involving five companies, one of which was Tishman, the company that was in charge of building Epcot Center, and Met Life, Metropolitan Life. They were also heavily involved, reportedly contributing 75% of the investment. According to a Met Life official, the company had been wanting to be involved in something at Disney for 12 years. This was a huge deal. <laughs> Why is Met Life building hotels? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, this is going to be at the Lake Buena Vista Hotel Plaza. According to the Sentinel, quote, in a typical display of Disney showmanship, fireworks and a chorus of dancers entertained a crowd of about 250 Orlando area officials. Disney President Frank Wells said completing the deal for a hotel complex was a, quote, long struggle. Well, buckle in, my friend, because this story is not done. This <laughs> hotel complex would put them through the ringer for quite a while. Yeah. Implications to come, for sure. In July of 1985, busy summer, Follow Us to Walt Disney World was released as a theatrical featurette in the United Kingdom. I had to mention this one because this 1984 film was a major staple of the Disney Channel back in the day. Has many memorable lines, as well as shots that were reused in promotional videos for years to come. It's just a little tour of Walt Disney World with your little cast members talking to you, giving you a little uh, little spiel. That's right. It's got the uh, it's got the uh, our friend of the program Pat Terry in the opening number. That's right. It does. Oh, thank you for reminding me of that. I thought you were going to say it has the guy saying Space Mountain. Well, no, you've heard of it. It does have that as well, which is perhaps most important to us. Right. Uh, yeah, very cool that Pat's in that. It ends, of course, with a huge musical number shot in Future World near the Fountain of Nations, featuring hundreds of cast members in their work costumes. Even Dreamfinder and Figment are there. Uh, Figment singing along to the song just like everyone else. Everybody's holding hands and kneeling and putting their arms around each other. It's very hands across America. Then they do kind of a little folk dance to wrap things up. Is it? It's quite a cosmic experience. Oh yes. You are the reason a dreamer's dream will always come true. Give us a feeling We share with others in the things we do And this great big world we're all about Needs love and understanding to make it still around We That keeps us afloat. We live deep within the hearts 
Incredible. It's very existential for Walt Disney World song. Also, I mean, I hope Bob Moline was was involved in the writing of this. Otherwise, it's a complete ripoff of energy you make the world go round. Uh, true. Even melodically. Also, some uh, some little uh licks stolen from We Are the World. Well, yes. The uh yes. The, that famous 80s song. Yeah, this is quite a number. If nothing else, it serves as an amazing catalog of vintage Walt Disney World costuming, especially yes. Epcot early years costuming. A real showcase for that. I mean, not just Epcot, though. I mean, there's all kind of all property wide. I mean, there's some Fort Wilderness stuff, some good M- MK stuff. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Costuming. And some great cast member shots. <laughs> yes. I have a feeling they dipped like straight in the cast member pool, man. Or just like, who wants to be yeah. in a video? That's right. On July 8th, 1985, the Disney MGM Studios was officially announced during an event with Florida Governor Bob Graham in Tallahassee. The $300 million theme park and production facilities were said to feature a Disney animation unit and also would include the Disney archives, as I said, relocating to Florida, which is so weird to me. Uh, also would entail the building of up to 12 sound stages, which is eight Jeez. more than the Burbank studio lot had at the time. Aside from live action and animation studios and post-production facilities, the park was also to include great moments at the movies, something which would eventually become superstar television, a sound show, two stunt theaters, and a video playground, whatever that is. Hey, hey. I'd have that video playground. It would also have retail shops and a whopping two restaurants. So still playing it kind of small with the original vision for this park, that $300 million planned expenditure is about a quarter of what Epcot cost several years prior. You know, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I I just wonder why... The Florida movie thing didn't work as well as they thought it was going to. It seems on paper it would work well. And then, of course, years later, you have you know places like here in North Carolina 
doing great with movies. Yeah, and North Carolina and Atlanta both. Yeah. Very weird. I don't, know. I don't know. I don't maybe it wasn't I don't know. Not enough stick to itiveness or but I mean he was so obsessed. The idea of building twelve sound stages there is crazy. And it, it of course never happened. But you know, you can't do as much location shooting, obviously, in Florida as you can in LA. But you can shoot on if you're gonna be shooting on sound stages, shoot on a sound stage. I mean, they could be shooting Mandalorian or any yeah. Marvel movie, because that's all green screen, and Mandalorian right. has the volume. You could be doing all that uh, down here on the soundstage. It wouldn't matter. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they're just ahead of their time. Yeah, it might have been the wrong time. That's true. On December 2nd, 1985, Disney announced plans for an entirely new water thrill park. Gotta have those thrills for the teens. Uh, and it would be called uh, Splash. <laughs> yes splash strikes again as michael eisner's amazing nomenclature obsession continued to bear fruit uh splash so we got splash mountain we got splash the water park splash uh, we've got madison's dive that they wanted to do at yeah. pleasure island i uh, love that movie i feel like there's more that i'm missing out on uh, just just everywhere really incredible yeah a splash the water park would eventually of course evolve into typhoon lagoon but it was said to be the focus of a shopping village and moderately priced hotel complex while disney didn't disclose a location it was strongly hinted that it would be on us 192 near the intersection with i4 where disney had already talked about building a second shopping village with hotels shops and restaurants with lower prices than those at Disney's existing village and resorts. Yet again, we come to the piece of land where they later built Wide World of Sports. This was a planning hotspot for ages, and they never did anything with it until the late 90s. I know. And then, you know, bef before this, they were planning, it was going to be a community called Reedy Creek. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later in the next decade, but it was going to be kind of where celebration starts. And they were going to have hotels and a little shopping center. And then they moved it over here. Uh, they really wanted to build something down there, which makes sense. And then later on, they're going to talk about more shopping options down there. So Yeah, just so right. crazy. Yeah, The obsession to build a second village is like, why yeah. don't you just expand the village? But Which, of course, why. they would also yeah. do. Right. But uh, very strange. And uh, Splash would be located there. But... Uh, it got moved, but what eventually happened is we will see. At the same time, uh, Dick Nunes announced that Disney would actually be going forward with the Grand Floridian Resort, which had previously been proposed pre-Eisner, but had been placed on the back burner. And I feel like this is not made a big deal of until the very end when it's opening. It's like, yeah. never really do much about, yeah. Michael, in December of... 1985, there was also on the 29th in a Palm Beach Post article uh, speculation about the future development of Walt Disney World from Michael Eisner. <laughs> Quote, among Eisner's far out ideas is that of a new Chautauqua to make Disney World a cultural center. Eisner says, quote, remember when Plato said some time ago, <laughs> let early education be a sort of amusement? You will then be able to find out the natural bent. 
unquote. And one morning a few weeks ago, Eisner was contemplating the revenues Disney might take in by adding a new, more serious attraction to Disney World, the Industrial Kingdom, where people would ride through working factories and watch park employees making chocolate bars, golf balls, stuffed animals, or breakfast cereals. (laughs) (laughs) That's what she called the four corners of a stable economy. Got your chocolate bars, your golf balls, your stuffed animals, and your breakfast cereal. Oh, I am obsessed with this, Michael. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about the factory tour? I, you know, I remember from at some point in this era between this time and Disney decade time, and maybe beyond, Eisner was always talking about the factory tour. Always. Yes. He wanted a factory tour so so bad. bad. And uh, yeah, I don't know, him and uh, Ferris wheels and factory tours, the dream and, <laughs> and, and like pleasure peers. But it, this is something he wanted to have at Disney's America 10 years later. And it's something he actually finally kind of got at he DCA. Got That's right. He got his tortillas and he got his sourdough bread. But why? I would love to. I want to talk to him so bad. I want to know what factory tour he went on as a child (laughs) that made him just delight in the idea of factory tours. Had to be Hershey, right? I mean, gotta be. Could have been. Industrial Kingdom. Industrial Industrial Kingdom. Kingdom. Also, Uh, let's talk about that Plato quote, (laughs) which I don't even know what it means. I am going to sneak into Epcot overnight and paint that on the construction (laughs) wall because they should have that on the walls like they have the walk quotes. Let early education be a sort of amusement. You will then be able to find out the natural bent. (laughs) Michael Eisner slash Plato, like Michael Scott. That's right. Oh, man. Yes. Oh, I love him, man. He was just, he was anything that came along, man. He just put it out there. Gotta get this factory tours. You know, but this factory tours were just gone gangbusters. People just. I'd go to, I love a good factory tour, man. Chocolate bars, golf balls, stuffed animals, or breakfast cereals. You name it. You've got them all (laughs) at the industrial kingdom. The four quadrant audience. (laughs) Now, also mentioned in this article are the Disney Wilderness Inns. Uh, planned for the Magic Kingdom Resort area. This is something that went on for a long time. Uh, they were talked about, I guess this might be an outgrowth of the Cypress Lodge. Uh, yeah. It was going to be a moderately priced Wilderness Inns. Um, and also, he talked about a chain of hotels designed as Disney castles. Uh, <laughs> if only you could take the Disney magic to other places, Michael. To other locations just got to branch out pre Stay in a castle dvc resort in i don't know vermont or wherever we would have a That's hotel right. designed right. like a disney castle a magical castle he is really getting into it man seems like he's oh, really yeah. getting into the he's the in his cloud. element for sure yeah just hanging out at wdi all the time that's right Oh, man. Epcot expansion continues. On January 15th, 1986, they added the Living Seas. The Seas Pavilion had been on the list of intended pavilions since before the park opened. 
Disney had been unable to find a suitable sponsor, and boy, did they try, and it just didn't work out. Eventually, United Technologies signed on more to get Disney contracts for their products than for any commercial advantage uh, they would get from the advertising. They didn't really sell anything to the consumer market. This is a problem that Disney had signing a lot of companies, especially early on, like IBM, because IBM would be like, well, we don't sell stuff to like end consumer, so why do we need this? United Technologies is the same way. Uh, but, you know, that meant Disney would be buying Carrier and Otis products, so it worked for them. The pavilion finally went into construction. The $90 million pavilion included its trademark 5.7 million gallon tank, which Disney publicists called the world's sixth ocean. On hand to promote the new show was Robert Ballard of Finding the Titanic and Sequest DSV fame. He was an unpaid advisor for the pavilion, but uh, yeah, he was he was on the team. While Michael Eisner watched from the windows of the Coral Reef restaurant, Frank Wells, who was a real-life adventurer and outdoorsman, descended into the Living Seas tank in a scuba outfit to cut the ribbon. He was accompanied by scuba diving Mickey Mouse and 15 divers in sequined covered wetsuits. Naturally. Naturally. Oh, of course. <laughs> Roy E. Disney was on hand, too, which is interesting. He stayed dry throughout, though. Maybe he, I bet he wished he could sail in the tank, do some laughs in his sailboat. <laughs> the attraction was the subject of an NBC TV special, which aired on January 24th, and was hosted by the late, great John Ritter. On January 26, 1986, it was revealed in the Orlando Sentinel that Disney was, quote, listening to an overture from a Japanese company that wants to build a 310-mile-per-hour train system linking Disney and the Orlando airport, end quote. In this article, it was also revealed that Disney was considering expanding its monorail system again. This time, the company was considering linking Epcot Center to Lake Buena Vista, and also a second leg from Epcot to Splash. <laughs> and the cluster of moderately priced hotels that were near Interstate 4 and Highway 192. According to the article, quote, the major obstacle to deciding where to extend Disney's seven-mile monorail system has been infighting between the entertainment-oriented old guard and development-oriented newcomers over how to use their vast property holdings. That struggle prompted company officials last summer to put a hold on the plan to extend the monorail from Epcot to Lake Buena Vista. Despite the delay, construction of an extension is virtually certain to begin by the end of the year. Uh, some of you know they even put the uh, monorail piling into Epcot. It was that certain it was going to happen. Yep. I've seen it with my own eyes. It is a real thing that exists. And it taunts me daily. It just seems like a no-brainer. No. Just the fact that you find out it was really came down to a conflict between old management and new. And yeah. new management just didn't want to spend. And that's just, uh, we came so close so many times. It's brutal. That's right. Also, imagining a maglev train coming into Epcot from the yeah. airport yeah. is pretty wild to think about. I, you know, I've said previously that I feel throughout our childhoods and even teen years, there it was just 
a cyclical thing of every couple of years, there would be a promise of high-speed rail to Walt Disney World from somewhere. Yep. And it just mm-hmm. never happened. And it's still And it's still, still going. going. Still cycling. Still going on. In the then-current plan, the monorail would make four to five stops at the village, hotels, and the convention center at this grand, large hotel complex that they were building, that they had the groundbreaking for. It also said, quote, less certain is a three-mile extension from Epcot to Splash and the new hotels. That area near US-192 might also include office and research parks and a $300 million television and movie studio. So did they not know where MGM was going at this point or not? I don't know. But interesting that they're planning research and office parks at this point. Yeah. One of the articles I had seen from about this time said they had not yet decided on where they were going to put studios. I think they said they had three different locations they were considering. So who knows? Hmm. Well, unfortunately, just a few days later, on February 5th, 1986, the Sentinel reported that Tishman, who was slated to build the giant hotel convention complex at Lake Buena Vista, had filed suit against Disney and walked away from the project. According to the article, quote, the lawsuit says that Tishman and its partners in the hotel convention complex had an agreement with Disney that the theme park would not dilute their project's attractiveness by extending certain privileges to other hotels or hotel companies, end quote. Tishman was alleging that Disney was courting Marriott to operate or manage its hotels. Not only that, but that Disney was considering taking over the Marriott World Center Hotel directly across from I-4 and, quote, contemplating or negotiating an agreement to build as many as 20,000 moderately priced rooms on Disneyland as much as 300,000 square feet of convention space near Epcot Center and a convention hotel. And quote, there's more Epcot, you know. Mm-hmm. They're, they're scheming on building convention space at Epcot. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth about if Disney was hedging on their original agreement. And Eisner ensured shareholders that they would fight this lawsuit vigorously and continue on their plan to continue building on property. Yeah, this became a big mess and would basically end the any kind of idea that they would work with Marriott for sure. And, you know, signal an area of kind of a bunch of lawsuits. Uh, this one was a, this one was a big, nasty one for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it just kind of kept spiraling and spiraling and eventually results in something. <laughs> uh uh, yeah it's it's just you know if he had cut this off if he had taken care of things at the beginning you know i don't know what the thought process here was like maybe they made the deal and then he's like no wait we're gonna build our own rooms that would be better and then i don't know then got cold feet and just wanted to tank the deal i don't know but a, a very strange turn of events for sure Stay tuned for more. Stay tuned for Yeah, you may think this is a weird legal aside, but it's definitely going someplace. On October 1st, 1986, Walt Disney World celebrated its 15th anniversary. This was capital A big deal. The year-long celebration was the first big Walt Disney World anniversary of the Eisner era, and it was a blowout. Guests coming through the turnstiles received prizes every 15 minutes. And every day, Disney gave away a car. That day's winner would get to ride in the Daily Parade down Main Street. 
This was the era when we really started becoming diehard fans as kids. So this event had an outsized effect. It got constant promotion and the anniversary theme song, which was featured daily in the parade. It was a real earworm. This was sort of peak early Disney for us. Oh, yeah. And uh, this event was not lost on us, even as kids. I mean, it was a huge deal. <laughs> I mean, they were just giving away all kinds of stuff, and everybody wants to. I mean, you know, I think some ridiculous percentage of people won something. Yeah. So, um, and it uh, also, we've said this before, but 15 years seemed like it was so old at that point. Yeah. It's just <laughs> a di- an unfathomably distant point in the past. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh boy, how times change. On November 9th, ABC broadcast Walt Disney World's 15th birthday celebration, a typical Eisner era extravaganza. It was hosted by Golden Girls B. Arthur and Betty White and featured performances by Dolly Parton, The Monkees, Diane Carroll, Ray Charles, Lattice Night and the Pips, Air Supply, The Charlie Daniels Band, Emmanuel Lewis of TV's Webster, and The Everly Brothers. Also featuring appearances by Charlton Heston, Ted Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, Harry Shearer doing a little comedy (laughs) bit, and Chief Justice Warren Burger of the United States huh. Supreme Court. So, wow, and O.J. Simpson is on it. Yes. So they had all their bases covered, <laughs> yes. really. Uh, B. Arthur and Betty White arrived in Air Force One, the Mickey balloon. And it just got wackier from there. And, of course, this means we get the trademark Michael Eisner introduction. I'm here in front of Spaceship Earth at Epcot Center in Florida to celebrate the 15th anniversary of Walt Disney World. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner, and welcome to the Disney Sunday Movie. Boy, this is exciting. I'm flying. Hi, guys. Hi, Michael. Tonight, instead of our usual Disney Sunday Movie, we're having an anniversary party. The next two hours, you're invited to join us as we celebrate the 15th anniversary of America's number one tourist attraction, Walt Disney World. It was the early 60s that Walt Disney first began to work on his project Florida, a world of fantasy and imagination he would one day create on 28,000 acres near Orlando. This was to be no ordinary theme park, but rather a showcase of innovation, quality, and most of all, entertainment. It's clear that Walt Disney accomplished his goal. Now it's up to those of us who are responsible for carrying on the Disney tradition to make sure the future lives up to the past. Happy anniversary, Walt Disney World. Happy anniversary! Happy anniversary! <laughs> Goofy voice from this time anniversary. I wonder, is this like Jack Wagner? Is this Jack Wagner? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Well, but, you know, we've talked in the past about uh, the Mickey's birthday land little thing they do it's got to be the same one gotta be right? the same it's, guy yeah the goofy is like oh <laughs> it's just so <laughs> weird uh yeah i i classy little toast there from eisner yeah it is i don't wanna, yeah you wonder if he's trying to sell off spaceship earth at the beginning you know you want to <laughs> buy this looks nice doesn't barely yeah, it used is, it is cla- classy toast classy toast yeah. On January 29th, 1987, the Arvida adventure ended 
when Disney sold the company for $400 million, twice as much as they paid for it back in 1984. So nice return there. Said a Disney spokesman, quote, It was a strategic business decision which will enable us to focus on our core businesses of entertainment and leisure. <laughs> At the time of the sale, Arvida had more than 20 communities under development in Florida, Georgia, and California. There had been reports that Arvida's chairman, who was also a Disney board member, was chafing under the direction of Eisner and Wells, probably. Essentially, in the end, I think Disney just raided Arvida management in order to create the Disney development company, and then just got rid of all these random communities they no longer had use for. Yeah, wow. What an interesting time. Yeah, think of all the random, random developments they could own today all across yeah. the country. On January 30th, 1987, Delta announced that they would become the next official airline of Walt Disney World, beginning that June 1st. In June, If You Had Wings changed its name to If You Could Fly, a temporary version of the attraction which would last until January 1989. Delta was set to pay $30 million to Disney over a 10-year period, which included $8 million to expand and enhance the Tomorrowland attraction. Oh, yeah. Here we go. They're going to take us flying. <laughs> and there ain't no denying. We're sure. Um, yeah, Eastern was coming undone at this point. Yeah, it's so uh, sad. It's really, yeah. you know, it's strange looking back now how early – Eastern started to crash, metaphorically speaking, um, yeah. because they were just such a huge iconic part. Like when we were kids of the of the the air industry, but man, when they when they fell, they fell. It's true. Well, on February fourth, nineteen eighty seven, Disney announced plans for its Typhoon Lagoon water park. Splash. Sorry, Splash, you have to wait. A park that Michael Eisner promised, quote, will do for water parks what Walt Disney did for amusement parks when he built Disneyland 31 years ago. Uh, the park was slated to open in summer of 1988. And thank goodness we finally have reliable surfing at Walt Disney on the way and snorkeling. It's a dream <laughs> denied for so long. We'll Man, talk about, you know, you, it, you put it on the back, back burner. But it someday it just comes right back at you. They finally got surfing and snorkeling. They finally. finally got it. No more need for the beach. This park would have to wait one more year from their plans. But uh, not only was Typhoon Lagoon a new guest area, it would also function as a backlot location for productions filmed at the Disney MGM Studios. Said Eisner, quote, you can say to a filmmaker, come to Florida. A spokeswoman added, quote, the attractions, rainforests, and saltwater lagoon could substitute for Caribbean film locations. But that's not all. The park was also set to be used to film a live-action movie called Typhoon Lagoon, which would release with the park's opening. Quote, the Disney movie will explain the mythology behind the park, that an earthquake, resulting tidal wave, and typhoon socked the land and left wreckage and a changed terrain in its wake. Oh, man. I well, want this movie to be made so bad. What a classic it would be. This would be uh, just an ultimate Eisner era treasure trove if it existed. I mean, all this going to the point, I think Typhoon Lagoon is one of the most 
consistently themed parks in Florida. I mean, we're in Disney. Yeah. It's great. I love Typhoon Lagoon. I mean, uh, the most choice lazy river of all lazy rivers. Oh, gosh. I think we've reached the point technologically where some enterprising youths need to take their little cellular telephones into Typhoon Lagoon and uh, make this movie. Yeah, it could be like that Outer Banks show, you know? Like some <laughs> cool kids. Uh, Typhoon Lagoon. Well, if it sounds like the studio is somehow behind this water park, it was. Eisner shared that a part of the expediency surrounding the opening of the park was related to the fact that Jeffrey Katzenberg and his children were turned away from river country. How? How? Also, the idea of Jeff Katzenberg going to river country is amazing. It really is amazing. It really is amazing. Well... Here is a clip from a Disney Channel promo from after Typhoon Lagoon opened, featuring Imagineering's then Young Turks, Chris Runko and Kathy Mangum. Chris, you were there from the very beginning of this idea. How did it develop? We really started with the name, and we tried several different versions of theming. We, we tried one design that was a military bivouac from the 1940s, and we tried a logging camp. Do all your ideas happen here at the office? Well, it doesn't always happen in an office. We've, we have some great ideas. We, we make a career out of drawing things on napkins in restaurants. Uh, in this particular case, uh, I was in my garage, actually, one night and doodling a, a, a couple of things out and came up with this little sketch of the boat stuck on top of the mountain. Our story is that there was this wonderful little quiet resort. And one day, this furious storm, enormous world-shaking storm, rocketed through the place, sending the buildings this way and that way, uh, and planting this fishing boat smack on top of Mount Mayday. Typhoon Lagoon is our answer to River Country, because River Country was getting so full. River Country in the 70s, when it opened, was revolutionary for its time. It was the first themed water park around. Uh, In fact, we've compared it to what Disneyland was in 1955 to other amusement parks. It became extremely popular, and we just decided to build another one bigger and better. Wait, I thought that Typhoon was, Lagoon was going to be like Disneyland. I'm confused. <laughs> That's right. Um, Get it right. This is really, you know, you start to see this foray into the story. Yes. And this is not the only thing that would have a lot of story involved, but... But this is one of the first things that I can remember where the story was constantly told over and over again as part of the exposition and build up to the park. Absolutely. This, you know, that is a great point. This and its sister attractions. There were three big attractions that opened in 1989. And each of them heavily, extremely featured intense backstory which was used as part of the pitch to the public. And I think you're right. I don't think that ever happened before. And I, no. I wonder what changed that suddenly this was like the big selling point. You got to wonder if it's like the Hollywood management. I mean, and they're like thinking of it as a film or something. I don't know. That's what I thought when I was doing, thinking about it. And maybe. Yeah, maybe so. It's like a pitch. Yeah. Like a movie. Right. Pitch. Right. Yeah. Uh, very strange, but very weird that it would suddenly go from something. I mean, nobody knows who lives in 
Liberty Square or who lived in River Country or who Pop was at Pop's place or, you know, who lived on Discovery Island. Uh, nobody knowed or cared, but all of a sudden we know all about everything about Typhoon Lagoon, about Pleasure Island, and about like Sid Kawanga and right. all this right. stuff at uh, Disney MGM. It's very weird. As you can tell, 1987 was a year of big announcements for Walt Disney World. There was a lot on the way, as Regis himself summed up in a segment during that year's Christmas parade. You know, Walt Disney once set up Disneyland. It will never be completed as long as there is imagination left in the world. And that holds true for Walt Disney World as well. There are always new and exciting dreams being turned into reality around here. Walt believed in keeping guests informed with his many progress reports on his weekly ABC series. And now in that tradition, this Christmas, we'd like to take you out a little progress report of Walt Disney World. So grab your hard hats because there's an awful lot of construction going on around here. Let's get started right now, okay? Tinkerbell, a little magic, please. We're on board the beautiful Empress Lily Riverboat, which will serve as the anchor for six acres of fantastic adventures. Right over there is Pleasure Island, or at least that will be Pleasure Island in the middle of next year. Legend has it that a sail-making empire once stood here, but now Disney Imagineers are hard at work restoring this abandoned waterfront into an adventure-filled island brimming with wondrous creations. Like one-of-a-kind nightclubs with entertainment as far-flung as outrageous comedy and magic, the country and western, the 50s and 60s music, jazz, and more. There are fantastic eateries, markets filled with treasures from around the world, and even a rock and roller rink for land lovers and sailors alike to enjoy. Hey, and it's all happening right here at Pleasure Island. Huh? Now, for a really big splash, take a bell. Take a bell. I'm sitting here in the middle of this 56-acre water park. Of course, it may not look like it now, but in early 1989, this place will be filled with water here at Typhoon Lagoon. Nine twisting and turning water slides and roaring streams up to 400 feet long, rushing down a volcanic mountain will be just part of the fun. It's here that guests can loll in the sun or splash around on the best surf east of Hawaii, thanks to the world's largest wave-making machine. And for a real adventure, there's even snorkeling in a tropical reef, where you can come face-to-face -face with exotic fish and even shark. Get away, get, get away. Nasty shark. I got him with my fin, though. Of course, if you'd like to relax a bit, welcome to the Grand Floridian Hotel. I'm five stories high in the turret of this magnificent waterfront paradise. For sheer romantic turn-of-the-century elegance, there's no other resort like this one. Take a journey back into the 19th century where it's life at a leisurely pace with all the modern conveniences, like a monorail station right beside the hotel's grand lobby and the most luxurious accommodations that Walt Disney World Resort has to offer. Right now, for all of you explorers out there, here is a special treat for you. How'd you like to own one of these? This 50-foot ship was a gift to the people of the New World from Norway's Norseman's Federation. And right now, it sits in the Epcot Center World Showcase Lagoon. And right over there is Norway, the 11th member nation of the World Showcase, where you can hop aboard a Viking craft and sail down whitewater rapids through a mythical Norwegian forest populated by trolls and water spirits. And here's, <laughs> here's the construction hat the guys wear over there as they work on Norway. Now, I'm just kidding, but it looks good, doesn't it? All right, here is a special look at the world in a new light. 
Right over there is World Showcase. And if you think it looks terrific now, here's a sneak peek at what will be going on there at night. Illuminations is now underway. Once completed, the World Showcase itself will serve as a backdrop for one of the most spectacular light shows imaginable. A breathtaking spectacle of music and lights, unlike anything you've ever experienced before. Okay, everybody, now hold on to your hats for the last and most exciting destination. Well, here I am, 130 feet in the air atop the Disney MGM Studio Earful Tower to tell you about an exciting new movie studio being built right here at Walt Disney World. When the gates open to guests in 1989, the Disney MGM Studios will give everyone the opportunity to really go behind the scenes and see how movies and TV shows are made. This incredible project includes a working studio where films and network TV shows are taped, animation facilities where you can see Disney animators working on future films, and a thrill-filled, one-of-a-kind ride through adventure that's guaranteed to knock your socks off. It's Hollywood in its heyday. and even includes a replica of the world-famous Man's Chinese Theater, where guests can relive great moments at the movies. As if that isn't enough, guests are also encouraged to volunteer and step in front of the camera to participate in the classic scenes from today's and yesterday's top TV shows. And who knows, while you're discovering the behind-the-scenes magic of the movies, you yourself may get discovered. Well, I hope you enjoyed our little progress report. There's always something new and exciting going on at Walt Disney World where the construction will never cease as long as there are creative ideas left in the world. Because after all, this is the place where dreams come true. It's really wild to hear all that stuff laid out back to back. This must have just, I mean, our, our, we lived through it. Yeah. But it just seemed, it was just such a wild flurry of development so quickly. Yeah. Like I was thinking, you know, as that played out, the kids today don't really understand. I mean, it just can't comprehend how exciting it was because there was so much. I mean, think of all that stuff. And that is only within just a couple of years uh, span that right. all that stuff would be opening. And, you know, as far as we thought, it was just going to be like that forever. That's just how it was going to be. Uh, it it was wild, the amount of yeah. stuff that was going on. And it had been, you know, right before that, you know, at Living Seas opens. Yeah. But before that, it's like there was kind of not much going on. Aside from that. Yeah, there was a, a couple of, I mean, Epcot and then the couple of years after Epcot finishing up. And there was right. like a little lull for about two or three years. But That's then, right. man, it kicked in hard. Remember those hotels, the Tishman hotels? Oh, yeah. I remember. Well, on. Whatever happened to those? I'll tell you. On January 28th, 1988, Disney revealed plans for the Swan and Dolphin Hotels. A $375 million complex to be called Disney Center, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. Uh, it is, I guess it is at the center. Of, I don't know. Anyway, uh, to be designed by Michael Graves Weird. and ending the Tishman lawsuit kerfuffle. It came to terms. Uh, all parties involved in the original Lake Buena Vista development, including prominent investor MetLife, were all involved. Save Holiday Inn, who was replaced by Weston, who was slated to run the Swan Hotel. The project would be laid out over 150 acres just south of Epcot with 2,270 rooms and 200,000 square feet of convention space. This seems to have scratched everyone where they itched. It seemed like Eisner wanted convention space near Epcot. 
and signaled the beginning of Eisner making a statement on property with architecture, something he was very passionate about. Uh, Michael, in the book Building a Dream by Beth Dunlop, I found a lengthy look into Eisner's interest in architecture. It's very dramatic, uh, particularly (laughs) in regards to this project. And it reads as follows. Michael Eisner couldn't sleep. It was September 23rd, 1984, only his second day at Disney, and he had just been shown the drawings of two outsized but utterly ordinary hotels for Walt Disney World that were to be owned and built by the Tishman Company. Quote, I said to myself, this is really horrendous. Later, long after his and Disney's career as a major patron of architecture was well launched, he would articulate the intensity of this feeling more fully. Quote, buildings, architecture, are something that stay with you in a way nothing else does. It's subliminal. You don't even know what you know about architecture. You get angry or you feel good or you don't understand why you feel good. Seven days and seven sleepless nights after seeing plans for the two new hotels, Eisner was possessed by a new determination. We're not doing it, he said to himself aloud. That week set a new course for Disney. So it sounds like he tanked it on purpose. Yep. And I think he didn't want it at Lake Buena Vista. I think he wanted it near Epcot. I think he chose the location, which I'd really like to thank him for putting those Mm -hmm. right there. Uh, You know, the selection of Michael Graves, he was selected in a competition with the architects of the former project. Uh, It would affect not only the architectural landscape of Florida, but Burbank and particularly Paris. Graves would be a major player in Disney's development over the next decade, and Eisner's instinct for postmodern design throughout Disney's empire would be a major touchstone of his time as the chairman. The book goes on to recount Eisner and his wife, quote, out in a four-wheel drive vehicle in the muck that typifies Central Florida's undeveloped lowlands. They drove until they were literally stopped by two huge, slow-moving armadillos at what was to become the hotel site. So there you go, Michael. Swan and Dolphin. What could Thanks. have been? It could have been. They could have built that same building at Lake Buena Vista. Yep. At the Hotel Plaza. It would have been fine. Yep. Out of sight and out of mind. Oh, if only he would come on our shows so we could thank him Very for nice. building it where he did. Um, I do remember watching. There was these previews about the Swan and Dolphin they would show on the Disney Channel all the time. Do you remember those, Michael? They were like a little commercial. Yeah. And uh, our grandmother was was excited about the Swan and Dolphin. And then I will never forget us going to look through the Swan after it opened. And yeah. She was not a fan of the Swan anymore. I forgot about that. I don't remember that. That's amazing. <laughs> I don't think she liked the uh, the black and white monkeys hanging off the chandeliers. Yeah, in the swan. That's that's the first thing I thought of too. The monkey chandeliers. What a weird, weird thing. And it's still there. Tubby's buffeteria. Yeah, there, looking like it did. Pink and teal, just. Or whatever that color is. Green. I don't know. Just still there. Haunting me. Yeah. To this day. Oh, boy. Yeah, what a saga. What a- It's pretty wild. And, you know, several major things happen that 
could have played out very differently. I mean, clearly he wanted to tank the project, like you said. And so it's just, it's just like him, him doing this. And I mean, luckily they didn't have to, I mean, I'm sure they had to pay money for the lawsuit, but, uh, yeesh. But it's weird because you would think if he had said, Hey, why don't you build it by Epcot? They'd have been like, yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. Very weird. Very weird. Very weird. Well, it was a busy time. It was a busy summer of 1988 at Walt Disney World. Like I said, very exciting time. It really felt like the hits would just keep on coming. On June 3rd, the Norway Pavilion was dedicated at Epcot by Norwegian Crown Prince Harald. Although the Maelstrom attraction wasn't quite ready for primetime, the prince and his wife had ridden it a couple of days prior and apparently got completely soaked in the process, which wasn't exactly the plan. They sounded just a little... Just mildly peeved by it. Hmm. You know, I'm wondering what the Crown Prince's real reaction to the ride was, considering all the work that had gone into what wound up being kind of a brief and sort of cursory experience. Right. Yes. A lot of hype. I was expecting Pirates of the Caribbean with Vikings. Yeah. And then it ended. And I was like, Thrill ride. A thrill ride. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was heavily hyped as a thrill ride for sure. Just two weeks later, on June 18th, Eisner and Pals gathered again, this time in the Magic Kingdom, for the opening of Mickey's Birthday Land. We haven't really mentioned this land in our year-long look at the Magic Kingdom, because it's kind of a historical afterthought. Originally, it was meant to be temporary. It was overhauled a couple of times throughout the years, before finally being mostly replaced with Storybook Circus in the big Fantasyland overhaul of the last decade. Tents are still there, though. Iser was on hand along with Roy E. Disney and Carol Burnett to sound the steam whistle which marked the opening of the land as Mickey himself recounts in this clip. And there was more to come. Outside, they were opening up my birthday land. I was so happy. All my friends were having a great time. And Duckbird was decked out. Give me a U. Give me an X. Even Carol Burnett dropped by to say hi to all my pals. She's so funny. <laughs> and can you believe the whole town sang happy birthday to me? It was official. My birthday land was open to everybody. And boy, is there plenty to do here, like visiting my house. Want to take a peek? This is my living room. I'd love to play the piano in there. If I have to make a telephone call, I use the den. Anybody for a cheese sandwich? Pleasant dreams, everybody. <laughs> this is the mouse maze that kids can run through. There's also a playground and a petting farm. Cindy Williams and her kids were there, too. Happy birthday, Mickey! Thanks, Cindy. <laughs> Nancy Reagan and the foster grandparents paid a visit. From out of the 100-acre wood was Eeyore. 
Goofy voice. Oh, good boy, Milky. <laughs> All the time. Um, man. Uh, you know, I might add, uh, reports say that Mickey's Birthday Land was developed and built within 100 days, which is nuts. <laughs> it really is. But also kind of believable. Oh, absolutely believable. Still amazing, though. I mean, to do something like that that quickly is still impressive and absolutely could not happen today uh also as mentioned in a previous episode nancy reagan and the foster grandparents just waiting <laughs> to be a band name right there totally oh totally so good yeah this was you know they had the petting zoo they had the little hedge maze with little water fountains and uh not a lot there they had the show there back in the tent but it was Duckburg, so that was exciting, but no real duck content, sadly. Uh, shortly after these festivities, on June 28th, the Grand Floridian made its debut. Man, it was just one thing after another. This time, the ribbon cutting went to Eisner and actor Burt Reynolds, yes. who was there with his wife, Lonnie Anderson, to film episodes of a game show he was hosting for Disney, Win, Lose, or Draw. The show actually filmed some episodes at the Grand Floridian in the lobby before moving to the still-under-construction Disney MGM Studios later that week. Guest stars for the show that particular week included Sally Struthers, Clifton Davis, Mark Price, Steve Cannelly from Dallas, Deirdre Hall, Alan Alda, and Jack A. And really, wow. who better and more classy to open the Grand Floridian than <laughs> Burt Reynolds? Yeah, yeah, great place you have here. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's a hotel. <laughs> uh, Reynolds quipped at the opening that, quote, My mother is proud and happy that I'm finally going to work in Florida and pay my taxes and Social Security here. Hmm. It's happy. At the same time, Disney announced the first two television series that would be shot at the Disney MGM Studios. Superboy a syndicated show about Superboy, and Good Morning Miss Bliss, starring Haley Mills. Uh, Miss Bliss was supposed to shoot 80 episodes, eight zero episodes at the studios over the next two years. Wow. <laughs> In reality, it only ran for 13 episodes, plus the pilot. So weird. Uh, it was originally produced by NBC for the Disney Channel, and uh, when it was canceled by the Disney Channel, it was retooled and moved to NBC, where it became, of course, Saved by the Bell. Minus Haley Mills. Wild, yeah. 80 episodes. Gosh. And I doubt they shot it, what they did shoot, at the studios, but I, I don't know that. never much. heard of that happening in reality, so yeah. Yeah. No surprise. Also being taped at Disney MGM that weekend was A Conversation with Carol for the Disney Channel, which I guess explains why Carol Burnett was at Mickey's Birthday Land, a staple of that era Disney Channel. Absolutely. It's funny. I read an article, which it was some 
syndicated columnist saying, you know, three new things have opened. Uh, birthday land and the Grand Floridian are wonderful. Norway is terrible. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Interesting that you would side with birthday land, but I yeah, mean, maybe how he's, do you? it's the hype for the maelstrom, man. It let a lot of people down. We were, we were I, not alone. I guess you're right. That may be it, not but alone. man, you're going to ride for birthday land. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's desperation. Well, on October 1st, 1988, the Caribbean Beach Resort would open. Let's take a look through our Dateline Walt Disney World from the Disney Channel. Dateline Walt Disney World. The world's greatest vacation kingdom has just gotten better. There's a new addition to Walt Disney World's family of fine resorts. Disney's Caribbean Beach Resort. Located just south of Epcot Center, this tranquil setting captures the feel of Florida with a taste of the tropics. Construction began on this fabulous 200-acre resort in mid-1987. And when all 2,000 rooms are completed by next summer, this will be the fifth largest resort in the country. Already, the finishing touch of tropical landscaping has been added to the third of the resort that opened October 1st transforming over 750 rooms into a tropical oasis. Vacationers can soak up the sun at the resort's six swimming pools or on the sandy beaches of a 42-acre tropical lake. A staff of over 800 will ensure guests a relaxing stay at Disney's Caribbean Beach Resort, now open in Walt Disney World. Oh, it's funny they included the number of staff. How many staff are there going to be a hotel that big? Yeah. They um, made a big deal at the time about how yeah, how big it was it was. Like one of the biggest resorts in the world. Yeah, huge. I mean, you think back then, I mean, well, of course they had the villas, but mainly their hotels were just kind of the ones up at the Magic Kingdom which were kind of small. And this is yeah. about like three times as large as Something like the contemporary. I mean, that was a big change. An even bigger change, they're moving into the moderate market. You know, these rooms would go from 65 to $85 a night. And they were trying to get some of that business. They were going against the competition again. And this was causing a lot of concern down on 192 uh, that they were going to run everybody out of business. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big uh, selling point at the time that, like, we have these rooms that are incredibly cheap. You know, we're doing what we you, we could never do before. And I think you're right. It was very different in style from, you think, of contemporary and Polynesian being very, you know, one large building and some outhouse, long, long houses or whatever. And this being a more motel model where you entered, you know, you enter your room from an outside hallway you don't have inside hallways and things like that so it really was the start of something very different yeah and something that would be replicated a lot in the next decade yes yeah absolutely it became really it's the template prototype. of things yeah. to come right yeah we would be remiss to not mention perhaps one of the most earth-shaking events of february 1989 when the crossroads shopping center opened just across the entrance to walt disney world on state road 535 it's hard to remember just how isolated Walt Disney World property was in those days from anything, really. People needed somewhere to buy their groceries. So we got the crossroads built uh, on 
land leased from Disney. Of course, Crossroads has just recently closed to be replaced by Highway Interchange. And it's really end of an era. So RIP Crossroads and your ancient and only remaining goodings. Oh, I know. We had some good times at Crossroads uh, through the years. Perkins. Late nights at Perky's. Yeah. Uh, after work, uh, always at that McDonald's. And uh, yeah, good times. Good times. May you rest in peace. Well, on April 30th of 1989, on the eve of opening the Disney MGM Studios, Disney officials announced yet another development in the Crescent Lake area, the so-called Disney Boardwalk. According to the Sentinel, the complex will, quote, contain restaurants, retail shops, and nightclubs that are reminiscent of Atlantic City in the 1930s and 1940s. Michael Eisner added, quote, Disney World has generally been seen as a place that's difficult to walk around. We want this to be a more exciting human scale. Hmm. <laughs> Disney's Marty Sklar added that Imagineers were aiming to differentiate the boardwalk from Pleasure Island, though the size and activities would be similar. Sklar also said that Pleasure Island was probably too small and that, quote, Disney World needed more nighttime entertainment for its hotel guests and growing convention business. Uh, I might add that Pleasure Island hasn't opened yet, so <laughs> it's too small. Odd. Yes. But he said that they would ha- likely have separate admission fees. Quote, Michael, it is certain, though, that Disney Boardwalk will be connected to Epcot Center via waterway at the French Pavilion that the company jokingly refers to as the French Connection. Ooh. Which I have uh, never heard. <laughs> me neither. So this boardwalk was, you know, the original plans for it looked pretty grand compared to what ended up happening. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a roller coaster, a carousel. I remember we rode the tram over to probably the same trip where we went to the Swan. We took yes. the tram out and came back via the boardwalk where there was literally a boardwalk there, but nothing else. They had some uh, concept art up on the, the walls and it was just ready to go. It would take a little bit longer than they thought to build this one. Yeah, this was, I mean, clearly they originally intended it for it to be much more of an entertainment district than a hotel, which is, it wound up being a hotel with a lot of restaurants and uh, some slight entertainment. But originally it was supposed to be, yeah, this big entertainment area. And it's interesting to me that it was announced this early, which explains, I guess, why by the time it they started actually building it, I was actually kind of surprised because it seemed like an ancient sort of abandoned yeah. idea yep. by yep. the time that they started doing it. Because it was one of those things you'd hear rumors about. Like, oh, they're going to build a boardwalk thing. And, you know, remember when we saw those signs for the boardwalk over there? Right, because they and took them down eventually. Yeah. 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 It just, I, I don't know why it languished like it did, but it did. And maybe because of the Gulf War. I don't know. Or maybe but it was because Pleasure Island didn't do too great at the beginning. Also true. Good point. That's a real good point. But, yeah, it seemed like an... Uh, a long forgotten thing when they actually started building it. And uh, then it actually did happen though. That's right. More on that later. Uh, Eisner was questioned about a rumored regional mall that Disney was mulling on its Osceola County land. Now this is a big 
thing that they go through. They are always mulling them all, and they're always Osceola County is always complaining because everything Disney owns is in Orange County, so they're making mm-hmm. all the tax money. So what about us? So reported retailers included Neiman Marcus, Bloomingdale's, Macy's, and Saks Fifth Avenue. Eisner said that Disney and the retailers were doing feasibility studies, but added, quote, I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up doing it. And if we build a shopping mall, I want it to be the best in the world. Yet another running theme in this era was building like the Mall of America Beater Mall somewhere down at Disney World. Regional. Yeah. Well, like we said, the next day, May 1st, 1989, Pleasure Island would open. What could one expect at this exciting new dimension of Disney Entertainment? Let's find out. The nighttime environment at Walt Disney World is soon to become much brighter as Pleasure Island begins to take shape. We want to give the 23 million or so people that come through here a year, plus the people who live in Orlando or come to conventions in Orlando, a place to go once the sun goes down in a nice Disney way. In this scale model, you can see the popular Empress Lily Sternwheeler is being incorporated into this newest Disney creation, which will make the Walt Disney World Village more entertaining than ever. Pleasure Island is a mixed-use development on about five acres that uh, was designed uh, to combine nightclubs and uh, festival retail facilities and a variety of fine and express dining facilities into a waterfront uh, wharf warehouse district which has uh, a fictional history. It will look old when it opens from the outside, uh, old in the Disney style, very well done. And then on the inside of all the spaces, the the lounges, the shops, the restaurants, it'll come alive with whatever type of experience may be in that building. Anything from comedy to uh, the top 40 rock and roll and video type entertainment available today. Pleasure Island involves a lot of live entertainment and uh, a great proportion of the live entertainment of of Pleasure Island is provided by the people who go there themselves. Um, So Pleasure Island is a mythological performance. It's a nighttime adventure that uh, mom and dad and the kids can explore. Um, And I think it's gonna be a terrific place. I don't believe you that it's gonna look old. (laughs) In a Disney way. Did not look old. No, uh, it did not. Pleasure Island, uh, go again, going after some business in Orlando, mm-hmm. uh, Church Street, and then of course Boardwalk, Boardwalk and Baseball, maybe. Yep, absolutely. And man, they torpedoed Church Street. Yeah, they really did. And for what? Uh, not a huge Pleasure Island fan these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, But one of the people speaking in that clip was Disney Imagineer Chris Carradine, incidentally son of actor John Carradine. In a June, blew my mind. I had no idea. (laughs) I am floored. We must interview him, and I will ask him mostly about John Carradine. Well, I want to interview him about a lot of things because he is a very interesting interview. Uh, In a June 4th interview in the Orlando Sentinel, Carradine had a lot of similes about Pleasure Island. Here is a tour of them. Quote, I've referred to Pleasure Island as a sort of standby me for grownups. Five or six thousand people get together and discover adventure. End quote. And find a dead body. Right. I guess. I don't know. What does that mean? Uh, Quote, Pleasure Island recalls the energy and vitality of the Mediterranean and South America tradition called Paseo in Spanish, or 
Passeggiata in Italian. Here in this open-air environment, we have more of a link to the town tradition of the Mediterranean. <laughs> oh, I know. That's how I always felt when I was at Pleasure Island. <laughs> Me too. Quote, at this instance, at this instant, it's sort of like being in Connecticut or Philadelphia and getting a funny thing happened on the way to the forum in good enough shape so you can do business with the big boys. <laughs> Quote, I think it's sort of like Field of Dreams. If we build it, they will come. So All of these things, Pleasure Island is like. And that's in one art, one interview. One brief interview. So it's either Stand By Me, it's Open Air Town Tradition of the Mediterranean, it's A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum in Connecticut Being, or Philadelphia, yeah, right, right, yeah. and also like Field of Dreams. It's like a lot of things, and it's old. Looks old. Well, mission accomplished. <laughs> of course, the centerpiece of all the 1989 expansions was Walt Disney World's third theme park, the Disney MGM Studios. This was the first park-level project of the Eisner age, not to mention it was Hollywood-themed, so this was a big deal. Jeff, we've talked about what an exciting era this was with major projects opening left and right. This was also the first park opening in our conscious lifetime, so this was really an enormous event. Yes, it was, and, I mean, the media surrounding it Definitely was Eisner-tastic. There was a lot of uh, content for us to ingest before we saw it in person. Yeah. Oh, that is so true. I mean, it was the first time we got to look forward to the opening of a park, finding out about all the attractions, what would be involved, and imagining what it would be like. I mean, there was lots of coverage in Disney News Magazine about what was coming out and everything. And... um yeah, uh, like you said, we had plenty of media coverage to soak up. Uh, it was the ambitions of Team Eisner combined with the skills of longtime Disney Ballyhoo masters like Charlie Ridgeway. And so it was kind of a potent brew to create a full court press media tsunami. That's so, exactly it, right. Yeah, it was all over the place. And of yeah. course, the uh, major NBC opening special, which we watched incessantly. First, for some reason, it was entertaining, but it got a lot of viewing at our household. Like you said, I mean, it was like the first, you know, first theme park in our lifetime that we remember. I mean, really remember and could ramp up for. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a big deal. Exactly. Of course, our local PM magazine affiliate from Charlotte's WBTV was on the scene with correspondents Bob Lacey, the goat and Sarah Van Allen reporting live from the park. Good evening, everybody. We're live and welcome to the Disney MGM Studios. This is Hollywood Boulevard <laughs> here in Orlando, Florida. I'm Bob Lacey. And I'm Sarah Van Allen. And tonight we are opening up, along with about, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 people, seems like half the country, the brand new Disney MGM Studios, which is a theme park based on the movies. It is amazing. You know, at 9 o'clock the park opened up, and by 10 o'clock, from what I understand, it was at capacity. In fact, right. some people have told me they've even had people camping out to get <laughs> in. We're going to take a look tonight and see what the hoopla is all about. <laughs> Mickey's making movie magic at the Disney MGM Studios theme park. 
You enter into a reproduction of the golden age of filmmaking on Hollywood Boulevard of the 30s and 40s. Take a stroll past Sunset Plaza and drift into the deco-dressed glamour world of Tinseltown. With a Disney twist, of course. <laughs> Ta-ta, girls. Have a wonderful day. Hollywood Boulevard takes you past the Brown Derby restaurant and up to a full-scale recreation of the Chinese theater, complete with hand and footprints of the famous stars to visit here. Inside is the great movie ride, full of lifelike Disney audio animatronics and guaranteed to become as popular as the Pirates of the Caribbean. The new theme park will show you the secrets of movie magic, from the Indiana Jones stunt show to the camera tricks performed in the water tank. The mold begins to rock as if on the high seas. 800 gallons of water come cascading down. But a studio tour is no good without working studios. So before anything else, Disney put up three sound stages. We've had the beauty here of starting with an empty field and building a sound stage that could also accommodate the tour. And so we have actually a corridor that goes down through our sound stages, and you can see what's going on there. Behind the scenes production becomes the show as hundreds of visitors an hour flow through the unique passageway. From the set of the new Mickey Mouse Club, it's nearly impossible to tell that Aunt Mel and Uncle Ed have their noses pressed up against the glass. It's going to be quite a change for the studio staffers not used to a starring role. When you first look up there and you first become aware that there's people up there, it's something that crosses your mind. And as you go on in the day and you're just doing your normal job, you really don't pay attention to it. There's times, though, that we'll gather around and we might be on a short break or something and you happen to glance up there, there's two, three hundred faces staring at you through the window at the same time. It's a lot of fun. I think it'll work out well. I don't think it'll bother anybody. Oh, Roger is my name, and Lester is my game. Come on, tell Pokey, it's just a joke. Don't your brain. <laughs> Disney's animators play a starring role as well. Guests watch as the full staff creates the mountain of drawings it takes for new cartoons and animated features. But the artists are too involved to feel like animators under glass. You get into it so much that you sort of you're oblivious to your surroundings sometimes. In fact, hours can go by, and you think just a few minutes has gone by. You know, when you get into this, your character. A separate backstage tram tour takes guests past the costume and craft shop and through the back lot recreation of New York City. There's also a thrilling stop in the flood-prone Catastrophe Canyon. Next January, the Disney MGM Studios theme park will open star tours. Based on a flight simulator, the ride hurls you through the galaxy along with R2-D2. 344, I'm going in. R2, light speed to Endor! To take it all in, you're going to have to add at least another day to your vacation. Yeah, this is the day. Um, we actually started uh, looking at a few-hour experience, and the more ideas were we just couldn't make a cut and we turned into a whole day adventure again and it's it's another day that people should plan on spending when they come to Walt Disney World. You had a chance to be on the great movie ride, yes? Yes, I did, just before we went on the air as a matter of fact, and it's <laughs> terrific. You go by these animated stars and they look so real, Cagney and Bogart. And it's really, really fun. This yeah. has been incredible with all the celebrities here. It's almost a who's who in Hollywood. Bette Midler was here. Yeah. In fact, I saw the Pointer Sisters perform. They were incredible. Art yeah. Linkletter is here. Annette Funicello is here. The list goes on and on. Harry Anderson from Night Court was uh, having breakfast uh, with the hotel that I was at. Whoa. 
Harry Anderson at the hotel breakfast. Harry Anderson at breakfast. I mean, that is all the, the all the Hollywood you need right there. That's right. Uh, man, that great movie ride. People oh, are talking about it. That's right. Buzzing. It's sure to be uh, as beloved as the Pirates of the Caribbean. No doubt. <laughs> but um, Bette Midler was there, too. Bette so. Midler, of course, was mentioned up front. <laughs> uh, and, ho- you know, Hollywood East, the big right. deal, all that production. And to that point, uh, even Jeffrey Katzenberg was on hand, which was a rare occasion in the theme park realm. He was shooting interviews on the New York street as a fake film crew bustled around in the background. I think for uh, our uh, audience to be able to share and touch that experience is what makes this truly unique. There is no other place like it uh, in concept or design uh, or experience for our guests. Jeff Kratzenberg, chairman of the Walt Disney Studios, says the park is designed not to interfere with actual production, but enhance a visitor's understanding of TV and filmmaking. Then, once they know the tricks, it's up to the audience to make them work. Well, that was Jeff Kratzenberg, not Jeff Kratzenberg. Oh, Jeff Kratzenberg. I misspoke. Yeah. Uh, we, we know all their tricks. That's we learned right. all their tricks. <laughs> and then we made them, made them work. Uh, yeah, good old Jeff Kratzenberg. Uh, but he wasn't all. Uh, bringing Hollywood to town meant celebs everywhere, although they were often of the, let's say, senior variety. Uh, Maury Amsterdam, Steve Allen, and Jane Meadows were some of those on hand who took to the stage and joined in a round of the Mickey Mouse March. Annette was there, too. Uh, from the, of course, column, Bob Hope, and the aforementioned Bed Midler took part in opening activities as well. Bob Hope went along with Eisner when they were going to pick out the first family to come through the gate. That's right. And wasn't uh, Bob Hope goes back to the original announcement of the studios. Wasn't he there for that? That's right. He was there at the very start. So obviously very, very enthralled with this experience. And very involved. They uh, picked out the first family and then took a walk down Hollywood Boulevard all in a, in a line right. together. And uh, the nationwide news were there to cover themselves, uh, including this creepy report about how a bunch of random housewives were there to creep on Willard Scott. But I can tell you, it's an exciting place to be. For one thing, you get to see the national news media at work, and sometimes it's pretty interesting. What are you going to say, Bobby? What are you going to say? Another station is on that satellite right now. There were lots of TV stations, a battery of radio stations from across the country, and the weatherman from ABC was there. But things were tense. Yeah, but I don't have anybody here now. You cannot put the phone down. It's a cellular phone. When you put it down, I lose it. And if you'd been here today, you would have seen the most popular network weatherman, NBC's Willard Scott, warming up for the Today Show. Hooray for Orlando, that phony promenade at Orlando. It's showbiz and we're all together now. All right, looking good. Flowers holding up. Yeah, so am I. And the ladies just love Willard. I love to see him. I see him on TV every morning. <laughs> I better He's the greatest. Gumbel. Better than Brian Gumbo. Oh, really? Yeah. Brian he Gumbel? has. Yeah, he makes you feel good. <laughs> oh, my. Oh he makes my. you feel good. Better uh, than Brian Gumbel. I don't know if that's more frightening or Willard Scott's weird hooray for Orlando vamping <laughs> he was doing as he was getting dressed. Exactly. And being filmed while he did it. Just strange. Uh, 
I also like the guy uh, having a, a Hollywood yelling session about he can't put down his cellular telephone because <laughs> he'll lose it. Yeah, it goes away. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it goes away. And it's like a 1989 cell phone. So it's, yeah, it's the size of a couple of bricks together. That's right. So. That's right. You know, MGM, Disney MGM, it's too big of a topic for us to tackle here today. We really need to have a series about this park at some point. Hmm. Oh, yeah. But I think it's it's hard to understate the impact that it had, the Hollywood aesthetic of the original park and the excitement present with all the production activity made for a very memorable experience, even if the theme park side of things were a little sparse on the attraction front. But, man, what the park did right, it really did right. Yeah, and I feel like, particularly for you, it just hits you right at the right time as far as appreciation of classic movies. Me too, but I mean, especially mm-hmm. you and learning the the magic of the movies. It was uh, yeah. As someone who kind of wanted to go into that world anyway, it was really really exciting, and all the other things, you know, the animation, getting to hobnob and look over the shoulders of the animators. It, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. We will return to this later, for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. On June 26, 1989, Dreamflight opened in Tomorrowland at the Magic Kingdom. This was one that we had been waiting for for a long time when it opened. It had been really hyped. And, you know, we we came to love it, but I can't help but remember being pretty disappointed when it actually opened. I was expecting an Epcot-level experience. Yeah, they planned, they hyped it up to be that, and it was not, but it was very lovable. Once you learned to love it, uh, it became an institution, especially because you could always ride it without a wait. Many repeat ridings, uh, mm-hmm. it, it benefits from that. We got into the habit of like sprinting from the exit back to the entrance <laughs> to, try, to try and like jump back on as yeah. and confusing the cast member there. Disney News said at the time, through the magic of 70 millimeter computer animated film footage, dream flight travelers are in the cockpit with the early barnstormers. Watch a death defying wing walker take a quick flight to Paris and the Orient, then jet into the future at a simulated speed of 300 miles per hour. Uh That sounds extensive. Here's Imagineer Larry Gertz talking about the attraction. The concept of the show was an attempt to capture great eras of aviation. And so what we did is we went through and we chose particular uh, periods in history that were extremely significant in the development of aviation. The entrance is the uh, Delta 767 Spirit of Delta flagship, and that was built from actual lofting drawings provided by Boeing. Great attention to detail is paid in every scene of Dreamflight, from this mural of a 1920s airport to the carefully manicured landscape of a Japanese tea garden and the beauty of a sunset in Paris, France. But this attraction deals with more than just the romantic side of aviation. There's the whimsical side, too. This scene depicts a barnstorming circus that uh, has utilized a farmer's field. And uh, so we have a field going on beyond us, but all of the makeshift tents and the airplanes down in the middle of this field. And when the scene is fired up and everything is animated, 
what we actually have are the airplanes and the stunt flying and the uh, grandstand crowds and everybody who you might have found at a barnstorming circus, except again in a cartoon rendition. Hmm. I mean, that is accurate, but I expected grander things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, they really sold, you know, those the shots of the Delta Clipper and being on there with the figure in its in his costume and the Paris and Tokyo the Paris France I should point mm-hmm. out and Tokyo scenes really you thought you were getting like a world showcase attraction kind right, of right right deal uh, but man that that load area still that uh, that concourse to the aeroplane still a oh yeah interior. that was cool yeah for sure. There's a lot to like about it. It was it was lovable in, in the end. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the hits just kept on coming in 1989. On October 19th, Wonders of Life opened its doors as the last original member of the Future World Pavilion lineup. Sponsored by MetLife, the pavilion offered two major attractions. Body Wars, a simulator ride through the human body. And Cranium Command, a theatrical presentation which took place inside the head of a teenage boy. There were a number of smaller attractions and shows as well, notably including The Making of Me, starring Martin Short. (laughs) I read an article in the Sentinel about The Making of Me, which I guess opened on a different day than the rest of the pavilion. Oh, really? (laughs) It's like, this may provoke some conversations it was very cryptic and hilarious Uh, but the making of me was an amazing film oh man so amazing yeah it really was attempted to take that on i yeah i'm amazed that they even tried and like the director was glenn gordon karen who's a big time tv guy who did 30 something and all of these had you know uh Leonard Nimoy did Body Wars. Uh, it, was, it was Hollywood all the way down. Hollywood, man. Yeah. Yeah, in a lot of ways, the, the pavilion was sort of at this historical nexus. It was an originally planned Epcot pavilion, but what was once supposed to be a dark ride became a thrill-oriented simulator. Cranium Command, which was once intended to be a show called The Head Trip, which yeah. is a great title. Yeah. Uh, it featured film segments featuring a number of then prominent celebrities. You got your Groden, you got your Hans and Franz, you got yeah. Bobcat Goldthwaite. Uh, <laughs> this was a real Eisner era staple to pull in the sort of SNL level talent. Fantastic attractions. Yeah. yeah. The pavilion's look was very of the era with a trendy feel that put it at odds with most of the other future world pavilions. Very mod, very, very mm-hmm. mall, upscale very mall. mall meets very um, mall. Bayside, California. Yes, yes. Icons like Rolly Crump, Walt Paragoy, and Frank Armitage had contributed to the original visions for the Life and Health Pavilion, but it was Barry Braverman who shepherded wonders of life across the finish line. He's probably better known for leading the design of Disney's California Adventure later on. Here he is remarking on Wonders of Life back in 1989. Dateline, Epcot Center. The ninth major pavilion at Epcot Center's Future World is now open to the public. 
It's the Wonders of Life, sponsored by Metropolitan Life. The theme of Wonders of Life is a celebration of fitness and wellness and the joy of being alive. Inside the Golden Dome is the Fitness Fairgrounds. Here, guests enjoy shows and exhibits like the Sensory Funhouse, where they get a hands-on chance to test their five senses. Goofy About Health is a multi-screen video presentation about good health habits starring Goofy. Yes, the king is returning to his castle. Triumph after a day of battle. At Coach's Corner, guests can improve their golf, baseball, or tennis swing with a little help from famous professionals. You could use some more leg movement during your serve. The anatomical players perform skits on good health, like this one called Flossed in Space. And Cranium Command reveals how the brain works by taking you inside the mind of a 12-year-old in a delightful audio-animatronic show. The bus will be here any second. Okay, But the highlight of Wonders of Life is an incredible voyage into the human body in the spectacular adventure, Body Wars. The intent in Body Wars is, is to have everything be anatomically correct. But I'd also like them to come away with a kind of an awareness of, wow, you mean all that's going on inside of me? Body Wars, the ultimate adventure, part of the wonders of life, presented by Metropolitan Life, now open at Epcot Center. Body Wars. All that's going on inside of me, Elizabeth Shue and uh, Eric Stratton, Russ Chairman, all in my bloodstream. Body Wars, which, I mean, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't it get a small exclusivity window to the Star Speeder technology, uh, which made Star Tours late, or was that? Yes, uh, yeah. Star Tours came uh, came just uh, at the start of the next year. So mm -hmm. it did have a little exclusivity window. I, I'm guessing that may have had something to do with MetLife trying to yeah. make them happy so they were they had a lot of a lot of skin in the game as we've discussed <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely so yeah wonders of life what a pavilion yes indeed it was it sounds like there was a lot going on i love that clip of the uh, anatomical players where they played their skit which was just like five people clapping yeah <laughs> riveting yeah, exactly. yay riveting well, on Sunday, October 29th, 1989, the resorts of Port Orleans and Dixie Landings were announced to open in 1992. Earlier in the year, in July, the Sentinel was going through Disney Development Company documents that listed these two projects as Dixie Landings and the Mediterranean Beach Club, which according mm. to several sources was to, quote, have the same international flavor as the Caribbean Beach. So I don't know if they're getting this conflated with the Mediterranean Hotel or if they were actually planning a moderate Mediterranean Beach Club to go along with Caribbean Beach Club. But I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it could be just confusion, but that is an interesting thing to look into for sure. Yeah, I mean, either way, that name was it. So you could have had the Yacht Club, the Beach Club, the Mediterranean Beach Club, the Caribbean <laughs> Beach. It sounds like a lot of a lot of confusion to me. <laughs> yeah. One way or the other. Anyway, we mentioned in the previous episode about the early 80s plans for Florida's New Orleans Square, a shopping, dining, and entertainment complex to be located next to the Empress Lily Riverboat. 
Ah, that unfortunately didn't happen. But these plans were retrofitted into the Port Orleans Moderate Hotel, which combined with Dixie Landings and the Caribbean Beach to grow the moderate-priced hotel rooms on property to over 5,000 rooms. These two new resorts combined would provide 3,000 of those, and this caused waves in the Osceola County concern of family-budgeted hotels on Earl Bronson Highway. Would they survive or not? Yeah. Disney was betting big on this. Yeah, after all those years of playing it safe and sort of seeding the market to the Erlo Bronson <laughs> area. Right. They, they, they moved right in. It was no more of the card Walker strategy for sure. That's right. And it seemed to work. Now the resorts were announced by none other than Dick Nunes himself in a ballroom at the contemporary resort where he declared quote, since we are building more places for people to play, we need more places for them to stay. Thanks for that, Dick. The event was tied into celebrating the openings of Delta Dream Flight on October 29th and the opening of Wonders of Life on October 30th. So I guess they extended those openings as long as they could. Hard to believe they were still milking the Dream Flight opening four months later. Yeah, that was so (laughs) weird to me. Like, I thought I had made a mistake when I, you know, when I saw this, I looked up. And, you know, of course, according to Disney A to Z, it said, you know, Dream Flight opened in June. And it looks like it did open then, but they didn't have their big opening opening until October. So, yeah, really stretching it out. Got to get the people down there, the press. But also discussed in the presentation were upcoming plans for the Disney MGM Studios with the opening of a 3D movie based on the Muppets and attraction based on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in the near future. Nunes also uh, updated the attendance on the Epcot Resort area where the Yacht and Beach Club hotels, as well as the Swan and Dolphin, were expected to open within the next year. There were also plans for two new golf courses on the property, which would become Osprey Ridge and Eagle Pines courses. Uh, Michael, Tom Fazio, and Pete Dye. We have to say their names every, <laughs> every time. time. They must be recognized. The, the Man, it's the uh, that's successful branding right there when you that's right. still remember. That's right. Uh, they had built the Bonnet Creek Parkway. That was a, a, a big deal in, its, in and of itself to navigate the wetlands, but uh, opening up all kinds of development. Uh, Nunes also mentioned a, quote, blue sky vision to build a transportation station on the south end of Disney property. Nunes said the station could link various proposed mass transit systems, including a high-speed rail between Orlando International Airport and Disney and a train linking Orlando, Miami, and Tampa. So, Michael, still. 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 But, man, the transportation at the south corner of property, why didn't you do it? Why? They were, they were, they had multimodal in their hearts, but they just never made it happen. Over and over again. It's just heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Well, let's check in with our trusty Dateline Disney World to hear a little bit about Port Orleans and Dixie Landings as they were planned in this early period. Between Epcot Center and the Disney Village Marketplace, ground is being cleared for two more hotels, Disney's Port Orleans and Dixie Landings Resorts. The ornate architecture of New Orleans' French Quarter will be captured in rich detail at the Port Orleans Resort. While up the river at Disney's Dixie Landings Resort, guests will experience either the stately grace of plantation-style mansions or 
the rustic charm of a bayou village. Mm, give me that music all day. Smooth. <laughs> very relaxing. I like how he pronounces Port Orleans. <laughs> he really makes a meal out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in the next episode, but this this area was very... It, this was a latter-day essential stay place for us, and oh, uh, it's near and dear. It's great. The Sasagula River. Much more to come on that, but... We love Absolutely. Port Orleans, Dixie Landings. We're gonna take it flying, and there'll be no denying. This dream flight's bound for non-stop fantasy. From the earliest days of trying, on the air we've been relying. To lift us high above the deep blue sea. And before this flight is through, you'll be soaring in the sky so blue. So that wraps up the 1980s. We stand on the cusp of a new decade, Michael. What, what do you think is coming in the in the next decade? Uh, this decade, I've got a feeling it's going to be a Disney decade. Yeah, could it be? I mean, there's everything is set up for success. They got their movie studio. You got the sound stations. You got you got a uh, you got World Showcase and Typhoon Lagoon. You can use as backlots. It's, that's, uh, that's right. Got to film that Typhoon Lagoon movie. That's right. They're going to be building sound stages just left and right the, the whole 1990s. You know, exactly. All those TV shows coming to film. That's <laughs> going to be a big deal. Haley Mills just going from soundstage <laughs> to soundstage, you know, you name That's it. That's right. Yeah, it's it's going to be an exciting time. Now, I don't see anything that could stop it. No, nothing. So stay tuned. If you don't know the story, you'll want to hear it. If you do, you'll want to relive it, I imagine. We're uh, just here about what the happened. Michael, <laughs> it's that time where we check in and uh, see if anyone joined up our Patreon this month. Yes, we have a new patron. I very excited to say uh, we'd like to welcome Joel to the Patreon. He has signed up. Going to get some goodies. Going to get some extra audio content. Going to, of course, get early access to our episodes. And we really appreciate him joining up and taking part. Of course, subscribers at the silver level will be joining us for our monthly live stream where we take an even deeper historical dive with pictures and video and all sorts of shenanigans have a lot of fun in the group chat and it's a good time so thank you all for taking part and if you need any more information about that you can find it at patreon.com slash progress city usa yes and we thank you all for supporting us we may have had some uh some new music dumped into the to the feed by now. Who knows? Yes. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's been a very exciting month on that front. Indeed. Well, uh, if you want to get in touch with us outside of the Patreon, you can email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. We accept questions, comments, concerns, ideas anything that sparks the imagination you can also just tweet us 
Michael is on Twitter at Progress City USA. I'm on Twitter at Jeff G. Crawford. Michael, anything else to say before we wrap up the Go Go 80s and move into the 1990s, a great decade to come? I'm just really excited. I have a feeling we're, we've got big announcements on the way, and I'm ready to get on set in those sound stages and see <laughs> what magic we can make. All right. Well, it sounds like it's time for lights, camera, action. So from all of us to all of you, we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks to talk about these 1990s. And until then, we hope you stay safe and well. Bye, everyone. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks Thanks for for joining joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.